There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Hey everybody, welcome to episode number 22 of the Hunting Collective. I'm Ben O'Brien. And today we are in Big Sky, Montana, once again, for a great conversation. This time is with a bunch of dudes, uh, three to be exact. The first of which is Sam Soholt, whom you know, have hopefully you listen to the podcast, is a regular guest, and the bus guy. Second of which is Giannis Patelis at uh, Bozeman, Montana, part of the Meat Eater crew. You've seen Giannis hopefully on Meat Eater TV. Steve Ranella, you've seen him. Uh, or heard him, moreover, on the Media Podcast. Uh, and last but not least, David Wise. David Wise is, among many things, an Olympic gold medalist, a free skier, and a half pipe. Uh, he's a four-time X Games gold medalist, two-time Olympic gold medalist. He scored one most recently uh, a few months back in Sochi. And he was just coming off uh, a win at the SP Awards as well. So David is a hunter. And an Olympic gold medalist. Not a lot of those running around, but it was it was great to get his uh, new perspective on what what competing and what hunting and what both those things added to his life. So he's had some uh, relative fame quite recently. It was also great to hear that about that from him and those changes, and have this whole group together. We all shot the total archery challenge and enjoyed the crap out of that, and had a great conversation. So. Hopefully you enjoy episode number 22 coming at you. We're recording. Yanni, tell us where, like, tell us about mic placement on podcasts. Right. Uh, I've been uh, taught to, by our sound guys that, um, who are string a can in New York who mix the meat eater podcast to put the mic, uh, roughly two fingers off your top lip. So Ooh. roughly mustache. And the thing we commonly run into is that everybody does this 
And they go, yeah, I got two fingers. And they're basically making a peace sign. <laughs> just to like- Yanni's talking about two fingers together, <laughs> two not fingers two together, fingers separated. And not, yeah, turn into a peace sign. But uh, I was explained, um, part of it is, you're right, David, that you don't want to be breathing into the mic and you don't want to yeah. hear, hear that sound. But supposedly there's a lot of sound that comes out of um, sort of the cheekbone area okay. as people are talking. Yeah. So what, what do you mean by that? Very confused. Sound that kind of like, like that's where some of the sound resonates from, like or reverberates from your cheekbones as you're talking. Maybe just the quality of the sound. I don't know. No, like uh, like it's not just all coming out of, out of out of your throat, right? Wherever the mic's picking it up from, there's something that's coming through your mouth and out through your cheeks, a little bit higher than you imagine where your sound <sighs> comes from. The, <sighs> the last thing I'll say about mic placement is that right in front of the lips, you get a lot of peas that pop really breathy and and stems. and you don't you don't want the popping peas well as this <laughs> let's don't pop peas <laughs> prevent <here>. popping peas <laughs> is what you're telling me mm-hmm. uh yanni introduce yourself uh Giannis patelis bozeman montana yep producer meat eater television right now pod- podcast anything else you want no we're at we're talking about we were talking about um what your title should be right and I said, producer's not enough. Do you agree that it's, that's not quite descriptive enough? Yeah. I've, not that I've outgrown, because I feel like there's room to grow as a producer still for me. But um, there's a lot of, you know, outlying things that I'm involved in. So producer doesn't quite, you know, cover it all. I said the glue. What do you feel about that? I like it. I like it. You like that? Yeah. All right. It's got legs. Giannis the glue. Right in. I always tell people just write. I don't know where you're writing to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where, where do you you get, don't have an info at the hunting collective. Where do you get no. most of your messages from? I don't like, know. Okay. They're just spread out. <laughs> like half or Instagram. But just write in wherever you feel. Yeah, just yeah. write in. Our address is not listed anywhere. <laughs> so go ahead and write in. Well, no, see, I feel only. like this is bullshit because I feel like a lot of people out there know my email or can find it. So I think you should. There is. You should, no, no, no. There's, if email. you go to thehuntingcollective.com, there's oh, my okay. emails right there. Got you it. You can find it there. So write in there. Yeah, or write, write a letter. Write to Ben. Write a not letter. Yanni. No, write to Yanni. <laughs> He's got enough going on. Yanni's the glue. He can handle anything. Can handle no, screen. I think it'd be great if you showed up in a couple weeks and you're like, Yanni, I need to have a quick 15-minute meeting. A bunch of people wrote in. I've got some ideas. You got some ideas. Yeah, here's, for the, here's your, the top 10. Okay. So title. if you're listening to this, please write in what you think Yanni's meat eater uh, title should be. And please include... I'm looking forward to seeing what your fans come up with. Please include descriptions. I don't have any fans, just reluctant listeners we'll see how how that goes David describe who you are (laughs) hey everyone I'm David Wise uh, and I am a professional skier by trade slash bow hunting addict so I'm here in this room because I happen to like to shoot bows a lot and I'm in the same place as these guys and uh, we decided to sit down yeah that's how hopefully how all podcasts work yeah just like we want to just keep talking to each other, but put headphones on and make sure they're two fingers away from your mouth. Above the top lip or at, yeah, top lip oriented somewhere yeah. so that the sound through my cheekbones is yeah. really. I hope you have a strong pronounced cheekbone. That's that right. You got to work out that, well. You have to have that, that tenor through the cheekbones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm coming off of uh, a very, pro- p- p- what will probably forever be the most successful season of my life. Uh-huh. Um, got to go represent the U.S. of A. in the in the Olympics in Pyeongchang and bring home a gold medal, and uh, I couldn't be more excited. Let me tell you guys this real talk. I couldn't be more excited to be 
in the mountains of Montana shooting bows with you guys (laughs) because uh, I'm an introvert at heart. Uh, I'm a mountain man in my soul and I, I, I'm passionate. I love, I love skiing. I love part of the reason I love skiing as much as I love hunting is that both things get me further up, further in, further into the wilderness where I wouldn't spend time normally seeking, you know, seeking new experiences. And, um, so yeah, I'm just excited to be, I'm excited to be back in my element because one of the one of the benefits and downfalls to uh, getting to compete in the Olympics is more people care about what I do for one year than they ever have cared about about it for my entire career. Yeah, you know the the Olympics tend to connect people, and they connect me to people who really probably don't even know what I do. You know, or or even if they know and even if they've watched me ski in the half pipe, they don't really understand what's going on. They don't understand why yeah. my run is better than anybody else's run or They're like cool dude with the long hair that yeah. flips upside down. <laughs> he, he does skis. the flips and spins and stuff, but he won a gold medal, you yeah. know? So um, the attention that I get is certainly, for me, kind of overwhelming. So um, it's just nice to take a step back and remind myself, you know, what 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 life is all about and, and do the, do the enjoyable things in the yeah. mountains. And I like flinging arrows at, at whatever I can fling them at. targets. We're coming back to that. Sam, I want you to describe where we are and then say who you are. Uh, okay. So we are in big sky, Montana. We are currently in a corner unit kind of condo hotel room type thing, looking out over pretty amazing mountain views. Um, yeah. Yeah. But we're up at the total archery challenge. And I think all of us have shot a couple days in a row now and Mm -hmm. um, arrows have been lost and good shots have been made, (laughs) but uh, a few of those, but overall, um, yeah, pretty amazing time up here and just good to be having a conversation with you guys. And the bus is here. The bus is here. The The bus bus. is down in the parking lot. You're Uh, the bus guy. I'm the bus guy. I don't, I'm not even going to say my name. The bus guy. Is that annoying? That you're the bus guy? No, I don't do think so. I think it's, uh, so I'm Sam Soholt, um, most recently known as the bus guy. But I think it it's nice to have a little bit more of a title on my nomadic lifestyle because I kind of started doing, living on the roads in 2012. And um, it was probably, I think it was 2000, May of 2014, I moved out of my house that I was renting and I haven't had a permanent address since then. So I've just been, living on the road. Last summer, I built out the school bus. And when I'm on the road, I'm living in that. And when I'm not, I'm just crashing wherever I can find a place. In all seriousness, what what mostly goes on in the school bus? Like dri- <laughs> driving and sleeping and then yeah. hunting hunt, hunt out of it. Yeah. Driving, sleeping, and hunting. So it's- it. and, that, sounds like and, a, that sounds like a well-used school bus. Yeah. What so, do you do there? Do you eat in there? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. So a lot of times I'll hunt alone and I'll, uh, you know- whatever, got a little camp stove set up on the kitchen counter in there and coffee pot ready to, like a French press ready to roll. And so I wake up and I make eggs and whatever and coffee and then out the bus door into wherever I'm going. And then when I've got people in camp, I always set up the wall tent, sits up next to it, Um, did a custom wall tent. And so you got wood stove and all the cooking stuff out in the wall tent and then everybody's sleeping inside and I've got like a propane fireplace. And so I always set my alarm an hour before we have to get up. I hop out of bed, turn the fireplace on, go back to bed. And then when everybody, and I start the wood stove. And so when everyone wakes up, the bus is warm, the tent's warm, and then we cook breakfast and go hunt. 
What's Man, the, you're doing you're doing hunting camp right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a bluebird bus. It is. 1993 bluebird full-size school bus. So what's the ratio of breakdowns to hunts for the bus? Uh, I should knock on wood. I have yet to break down. God, that's good. So, but I have done a lot of I've spent a lot of money on preventative like maintenance. So I before I took off last uh fall, I went I spent almost $1600 on oil change. Um, they fixed a bunch of exhaust leaks. There was hydraulic fluid that needed to be sealed up. Um, they did a full run through. They did, um, I had some lights that I had, you know, put a screw through some electrical work. And so I had shorted out the tail lights on one side. And so they fixed all that. I mean, it was just a, I had them run through the whole thing. Um, a guy that does service on all the regional school buses in the area where I did the build. And so I figured if he's getting school buses ready for kids riding on them, I figure I'm in good hands. <laughs> But and then I've you know I've I've anytime I start to think I'm having trouble with it I take it in and go okay I need you to run through this I need you to check it out and then I'm always trying to be ahead of it because I don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere and <laughs> you've been inside right oh yeah I've been in the bus. is it dialed like when you're in there you're like Man, I, I could do bus. a couple hunts out of this I'm thing podcasting in the bus have you had anybody reach out and say hey do you have plans on how to do I want to do a bus oh Can yeah you, yeah so <clears throat> I will say. So I've had a lot of people reach out and say, oh, I've always thought about doing a bus. Uh, you know, like, can I ask you questions if I get one and build it? And uh, if I'm going to be completely honest, I've probably talked more people out of buying a bus than, <laughs> than I have inspired people to buy one. And I love the school bus. And it's the project has been awesome. And everything I've done with it has been awesome. And for what I'm trying to do with it, it is the perfect vehicle. I mean, it's you can't miss it. It goes by, you're like, oh, there's a painted up school bus you can tell there's like you know beds and stuff inside it's like try, people trying to figure out what's going on but if your goal is to travel somewhere and just enjoy the outdoors more a school bus may not be the answer <laughs> you know i feel like that statement's common sense but well it's nice it, that people know yeah no it, like don't buy a school bus if you want to go up in the mountains right it's not a you know you're not yeah. taking it off road uh once you get there you don't have a vehicle unless you pull something or meet people there. Um, like last year I pulled a, so I had the full size bus and then I pulled a utility trailer with a four wheeler on it. And so I was, you know, like, I think the bus is 36 feet long and then I had a, you know, 14 feet of trailer. So I was, you know, running 50 feet up. You were a moving conglomerate, like, man. Like gravel roads and stuff. And like every time I turned on one, I was just kind of in a panic trying to figure out if I could like turn around Like this S turn, yeah. Yeah, I was like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, and I had no idea how buses handled on like muddy roads or snowy roads or whatever. So my option, uh, if there was bad weather coming, I just parked it and stayed. Yeah. <laughs> I just funny. didn't go anywhere. I've dealt with that on a, on a much subtler level, uh, just pulling a trailer. I think anybody who's, I've, I got a little travel trailer for the family and, and uh, everybody just assumes you can just drive the dang thing everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've definitely had some conversations with my wife where I'm like, look, we got to have a plan for how we're going to get out of the parking lot before we get into it. Because if I jackknife this thing in the parking lot, I'm gonna have to take it off and yeah. get some get five friends to yeah. like torque it back around. How and, and bad? Get it out. Yeah, how bad do you want Dairy Queen? No, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, let alone camping spots, but yeah. just getting gas, just you getting fuel. Think, you know, yeah. just stopping off. And yeah. I, I'm picturing you trying to back, like maybe towing a bo uh, boat on there, trying to back that into a dock. <laughs> <It's> into a, <laughs> so into it, a loading. Honestly, like with, the mirrors are pretty good, so you could like you got to go slow, but you can back something up. The worst part is the departure angle on behind your rear axle is so far back. Like you have so much 
vehicle behind the rear tires that if you go through a dip, like I, like the jack on my trailer, it was, you know, I don't know how long it was when it started, but I probably ground off like six or seven inches <laughs> of the bottom of the jack because every time I go through a dip, it was just, and I would just run that through. So then I just run a couple extra two by sixes. To- yeah, it's just fine. Yeah, yeah just have fine. a big, you know, block and I can yeah, jack blocks. it up on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's. Well, you got to be strategic, but overall, the bus is awesome. Well, and the, when, and the main, go- sorry, Ben. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, I say when you first did the bus, I said, it's going to break down every time. I was like, there's no way <laughs> the bus to the hunt to ratio breakdown, I figured would be one to one. Well, I got, I got one. You beat me on that. Yeah. It's a 0%. Breakdown 0%. But I got pretty lucky when the, I bought, I basically bought the bus from a school district. It was one guy had bought it, but he didn't use it. And I bought it from him, but the school had paid to do a complete rebuild on the motor and the transmission. So like when I got it, only had 20,000 miles on the rebuild. And I think I put, 14,000 miles on the bus now. Yanni. Sorry. Two, two questions. Yeah. Main, real quick, main purpose of the bus. Yep. And then uh, what's a 92 rebuilt engine bus go for? Okay. So main purpose of the bus. So a long time ago, I uh, was sitting around with my brother and a buddy of ours, and we were talking about like how cool it would be to buy a school bus and do like a 12-state turkey tour. And just drive around and kill turkeys. For oh, like, I didn't know you were such a turkey fanatic. We were talking a little bit at lunch, yeah. but this is one we're going to get. Let, let's let him get through this, but we're getting into the ten turkeys like conversation. It. Yeah. Go, mm. bring it. So we were like, you know, you could you could trap. I mean, you can buy turkey tags everywhere. There's almost nowhere you have to like. There's very few states you have to draw a turkey tag, and so you could say you go hunt in Nebraska and you kill three turkeys, and then you just go to the next state and you buy tags. And we just thought that would be cool to rip out all the guts out of a school bus and have a couple cots and just a wood stove and whatever and like keep it super simple and just like travel around and kill turkeys. And that was the original like, you know, three guys sitting around bullshitting idea. And then it was, I think it was like three years after that. But like when we had that conversation, like every time I'd see a school bus, it'd be like, oh, look at that bus. You know, like, I mean, it's like, it'd be like, a, it'd be like a bus. You had like bus lust. Oh, <laughs> yeah. look at that short bus. Like, oh man, look at that one. That'd be like perfect size for doing this, you know? And um, it was the fall of 2016. I was kind of coming off a hunting season, trying to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. Um, all of the public land uh, transfer debates and everything like, were coming, you know, happening. Um, people were starting to get fired up about trying to keep public lands public. And I just it seemed like the right opportunity to both get the bus and build it out and then have it mean more than just some guy roaming around hunting. Cause that's, you know what, like, that's not that cool of a story. Like it's just a homeless guy in a bus traveling around <laughs> trying to shoot things. So I tried, I attached it to this public land message and my whole goal was to stay at a very elevated level to raise awareness about the issues and help educate people and kind of, have people look at it and try to figure out what I'm talking about and then go do research on their own um, about all the public land stuff and just kind of a little bit of a call to action to get people involved with trying to figure out what they can do to keep stuff public. So that was the the whole goal. And it was $3,500 to buy the bus. Gosh, what would you have guessed, Yanni, on a cost? A little higher. A little higher. Five, six. So he had it, list, he had it listed for $5,500. I first tried to trade guns and gear because <laughs> I like to barter. And uh, fine, I think I wore them down. You just happened to have <laughs> <laughs> well, an so armory <laughs> to trade out. 
Well, I've done, so I've done a lot of photo work for different clients over the last six, eight years. And, you know, a gun here or there and a pack here and there and clothing and coolers and all sorts of stuff. And so uh, the guy I bought it from, his name was Carlos in Fort Lepton, Colorado. And I was like, do you like to hunt? Do you like to fish? Like, would you want to trade gear for it? And he's like, well, what do you got? And I was like, what do you need? You know? And so he's like, oh, we'll take, you know, like looking for this. And so I gave him like a whole laundry list of stuff. And I think I just wore him down. And finally he was like, all right, I'll take 5,000 in gear trade or 3,500 cash. And I said, sold 3,500. So I bought it New Year's Eve, 2016. And the funny part about that is that about five years ago, Sam and I were on a hunt. And during the hunt, I was talking about podcasting. And in that same hunt, he was talking about building a bus. And then about at the same time, yeah, four years later, whatever, now we're talking about you're we're talk- on your podcast talking about my bus. That's crazy. That's <laughs> deep. Whoa. It's real deep. All right, we're going back to David. Um, I don't have any transition <laughs> at all. Wow, that was that was great. Thanks. I we're just gonna get back yeah. to you eventually. Thank you, Sam, for no being problem. a part of the podcast. Now yep. we're going back to David. Um when did you start hunting, David? Ooh, great question. Uh I started uh it depends on how you define it. I started uh tagging along with my sisters. Um, when I was eight or nine and, uh, got my license as soon as I possibly could, uh, to primarily hunt. <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm an opportunist. I'll hunt, I'll fish. I'll, I, I love the idea and the, and the ability to go out there and provide food for yourself, uh, off the land. So, um, but, but I definitely, because my time has always been limited, even from a young age, we were always yeah. traveling to ski. Um, I've, I've sort of naturally gravitated towards the big game side of things because I could go out for a couple days at a time. A lot of times it was just weekends and the reward was immense. Whereas if you're a, if you're a, an amazing chucker hunter or you're an amazing fisherman, you are still providing food for you and your family, but not at the levels that you are when you can harvest a deer or harvest an elk. Yeah. Um, so my dad, my, I have sister, I have twin sisters that are four years older than me. And my dad hunted kind of recreationally when he was growing up. And, um, it was always something that he respected and liked, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big thing to him until his daughter started to getting to the age where maybe they could hunt. And he realized, no, this is something that I kind of want to pass down. So my dad, ironically, got back into hunting because of my sisters because they were getting yeah. to the age where they could hunt and uh they went out those first couple of years and they were just absolutely clueless because he wasn't he wasn't a great hunter he was he had just done it like i said recreationally and his knowledge level was low but um when you're the guy when you're the guy that people because the re, when we all go out and hunt especially most of nevada hunting is public ground so when you go out and hunt in public ground you bump into other people who are hunting as well and you don't always tell them where you're going, but you always chat about what what's your experience. Have you guys seen any nice bucks? Have you seen any does? What have you seen? And uh, the guy with two 12-year-old girls. <laughs> twin girls. Yeah. Twin girls <laughs> hunting uh, definitely sticks out like a sore, a sore thumb. So my family essentially lucked out in the fact that they kind of bumped into some people who are really knowledgeable about hunting. And uh, those guys basically took my dad and my sisters out hunting and that was just at the age where i was old enough to tag along i'm not going to say that i wasn't kind of holding them back and i and in hindsight i i i'm thankful that they were willing to hike at the pace that an eight-year-old could hike i would say i was probably setting a pretty a pretty decent pace for an eight an eight-year-old but i was still eight <laughs> you know but um i loved it so much i i don't know i, I think some of hunting is innate 
you know, that I don't, I can't really explain why I liked it, but I always liked it a lot. And, and I got to be there when my sister got her first buck and, um, I got to experience the whole process from, you know, the, the hunting, we hunted hard. We had, we were having a hard time finding anything. Uh, then we saw a buck, she shot it, she heart shot it. I mean, it was an amazingly quick, ethical, lethal kill and, you know, the butchering process, all that stuff fascinated me. And then I got to experience it from, from a food side. And that was it. I was at eight years old. I've, I've been eating deer since I was eight. And, um, like I said, my time, the time for me has always been the the biggest, probably the biggest obstacle between me and hunting. I think I, I look at, at, and me and hunting kind of the same way I look at me and my wife. This is going to be a really ridiculous analogy. So good luck here, working here your way go. through this. Analogy. <laughs> here we go. You ready? <laughs> um, where like my wife and I, we met when we were young and we, we didn't get together when we first met, but we were always destined for each other. Yeah. And that's how I feel about hunting is like I hunting and I met at a really young age, but I always just kind of dip my toes in it. But, but I was meant to be a sold out bow hunter. It, I just didn't realize it. Yeah. And same way, same thing with my wife. I, like I met her and I, she fascinated me, but I didn't really know. And I wasn't really in a good place in my life to be with her at that time. And we went, we went our separate ways and, um, you know, met back up a couple of years later. And I was like, holy crap. Yeah, I can't, I haven't been able to forget this girl. And, you know, but beyond that, it was just wildfire. And uh, same thing with hunting. It was like, I always liked hunting. And, and in Nevada, our, our opportunities are somewhat limited, especially on the rifle side. Um, if you put in for easy to draw units, you can yeah. probably, you can most likely draw a tag a year. Uh, but that's not even guaranteed that even that's not guaranteed the, the, between cat hunting cow elk and putting in for everything else. I mean, literally when I, when I, when I would put in for the Nevada draw, I'd, I'd, I'd run out of things to put in for cause I just wanted to draw something. So the, the hunting was a little limited. So I would just hunt when I drew a tag. So I, yeah. you know, one year I'd draw a deer tag and I'd hunt that. And the next year I'd draw a deer tag or maybe an antelope tag and I'd hunt those. Um, whatever tag I happened to draw would be the animal I chased. It wasn't like I was, I was not very calculated about it. It was just kind of like throwing some darts at the wall and, and, and hunting whichever one stuck. And I drew a, an elk tag one year and I realized at, when I drew an elk tag, I've never seen an elk. <laughs> That's going to sound super funny to you guys because you grew up in, in areas where elk are plentiful and you see them on the side of the highway. And I've seen a, a lot of elk since then. But when I drew it at a... No, no, I want to clarify that uh, when uh, I was started as a elk hunting guide, I'd probably only seen maybe a dozen <laughs> elk up to that point. Let okay. me also clarify, I, think, I grew up on the East Coast. Yeah, I grew up in Michigan. Yeah, and I, I, and I, I grew up on the east side of South Dakota. That's true. Okay. So. <laughs> so shut that down. Continue, David. <laughs> Pardon my ignorance. I, Before but, you continue, I want to give you an A+. Plus, definitely an A on your analogy because like, if your gal isn't happy with the way that you compared her to your, like, your love to hunting and then she doesn't love you more now, like she yeah. should, right? I was super that, concerned that, that, that when, was you first, when you first brought up the analogy. I'm like, he's about to crash and burn on this one. Like, <laughs> right. But that was good. Because when I'm hunting, I'm chasing. Like, <laughs> when there's chicks around, I'm chasing. It's like the same thing, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly the same. Yeah. There's no way. I would also say um, your story, I think, is similar to a lot of folks' stories. And I'd like to hear from everybody about this particular point which is, one, my dad stopped hunting for a long time until I got into it. And then he got back into 
you know, at my level. Yeah. And then as I've as my levels of hunting have kind of increased, he's he's gone back with me, kind yeah. of like the metronome ticked. But then also during college, I didn't hunt as much. Like during that formative time when I was trying to figure out my life, mm-hmm. I hunted markedly less than I did when you know I turned twenty three and got out of all that and got into like what what do I want my life to be? So I I, I find like that story is not it's pretty damn similar to a it's, lot of yeah it's, it's common it's actually a more common story the more i share it with people the more common i realize that is is that um and i think that that the, the heritage of hunting is super important i'm excited to teach my kids to hunt when they grow up you yeah. know and uh so anyways yeah I, I i was i stopped on uh you know drawing my first elk tag and realizing i'd never seen an elk before yeah and being like okay i guess i gotta go figure this animal out uh but i've I've grown up, I feel really fortunate to have grown up in a, in a state with so much public land. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we four are all very passionate about is like, we want to see, if anything, more access to public land. Yeah. Uh, if anything, we want to see just it, it protected better and better because I never once hunted on private land until I was like 26 I was going to ask old. you that as you were talking about like, oh, I drew a tag here and that was all public land. All your entire- always public land. It, it there was no other, there was no alternative. We were kind of, I mean, me and my dad and, and our hunting buddies, we would kind of laugh at the people who went out and bought landowner tags. We were like, why would we buy a landowner tag when we can buy the $35 deer yeah. tag? You know, it, yeah. it just, it just wasn't the, it wasn't the, the approach that we had to hunting because hunting for us was always about food. You know, uh, it was never about shooting the biggest animal. And would we shoot, if you had a choice between the bigger buck or the smaller buck, are you going to shoot the smaller buck? No, you're going to shoot the bigger one. Yeah. But if you have a chance between a small buck and no buck, are you going to shoot the small buck? Yeah, because it's food. It's food for the freezer. And so, yeah, that was, that was always my heritage growing up in hunting was it, it yeah. was public land was the only option and that's why i say i feel really fortunate to having grown up in nevada because we do have so much access to public land yeah. and i've learned <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't describe myself as a very good hunter but i'm a very relentless hunter and i think the public land is what taught me that is because i realized everybody has the same chance on this piece of ground but the guy who walks a little further in or goes or climbs the mountain a little bit faster he has a greater chance. Yeah. And I learned that from a pretty young age and that's how I hunt today. I, it drives some of my friends that I hang out with crazy. They're like, why did you walk that far in? <laughs> why did, the, the, main, the main question usually is, why did you shoot that that far in? <laughs> and I'm like, because that's where I found it. <laughs> Sorry, you know? And uh, so anyways, I, I kind of got lost on my- No, that's know. a different, it's just a different way to grow up. I mean, I grew up hunting public land, but it was, it was a lot different. Yanni, you grew up, Hundred percent private. Hundred percent private in Michigan. I don't even think the concept of public land really hit me until I was probably I don't know five years into guiding elk hunters on public land, and so I kind yeah. of sort of realized what was going on there. And we had private access to private land, to public land, right? It was harder to get to, mm-hmm. so we saw a few dudes coming in, and just slowly figured out that we were you know, kind of protecting it. You wouldn't talk about it much in town as to where we were hunting, right? Because we had a little bit of a honey hole. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was mid-20s until I was kind of like, oh, wow. Yeah, a hundred square miles that just like, just go, right? I was the same way. I was maybe 25 years old. I grew up hunting public land, mostly. And then got to 25, I was like, wait a minute. I grew up hunting public land. (laughs) 
I just thought that was a place everybody went hunting. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had no idea that it was like some kind of classification around where nope. could go and not go. I just thought, well, we go, sometimes we go to private every once in a while. We, we would hunt private farms every once in a while. We would, most of the time we would go public. Yeah. It was like, we just we kind would, of two things. We would access public uh, through private quite a bit growing up, but that was just part of it. I, and I didn't think anything of it. I really didn't. And, and most of the time, most of the time, for me, it was never, uh, we were never hunting on the private ground. It was just an access point right. yeah. to to a big piece of public land that didn't have a lot of access. So um, it was always a cool, it was cool to be able to go through there because then, you know, you kind of knew you were going to, you were going to get some opportunities yeah. that other people weren't. But um, as I was talking about my analogy, I'm, I'm, I'm going to complete the circle of the analogy of how I went from being a recreational hunter to uh, <laughs> to a guy sitting here having a podcast with you guys. Uh, and it's almost 100% Remy Warren's fault because... Um, <laughs> you beat me to it. I was going to be yeah. like... <laughs> it's so, just, if he gave you the Remy Warren disease, then that's why you're he, like, dude, he, too damn he far just, in the wilderness. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, he gave me the bug and I haven't been able to get away from it. Um, I So after... I was always a hunter and I would always put in for tags and, and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't, it honestly wasn't even at the top of my list every year. Everything, the top five items on the top on my list were skiing related. And then when I finally changed my perspective, got married and had uh, my little girl, my first, my, my daughter, I have two kids now, Nayeli and Malachi. When I had my little girl, my perspective changed and, and, and three or four of those top five things became family and, and, and people oriented. And that really helped. That actually helped me be a better athlete, better skier, because I wasn't so caught up in success on a pair of skis. But um, but the top five never really included hunting. Hunting was up there, you know, it was in it was like six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. But um after the Olympics in 2014, I won my first gold medal. And all of a sudden, I had more attention on me than I had ever expected to have in my whole life. For one month of the year, they treat you like an absolute celebrity. Yeah. And people want you to show up to their events and they want to, they just want to take photos with you. And, and it was just kind of foreign for me because skiers have always appreciated what I do, but the rest of the world really didn't care. They're like, well, why, why would you flip around in a half pipe? That's silly, you know? Uh, so I was overwhelmed. As as the mountain man, the mountain man introvert in me was overwhelmed, and I was just having a just a casual conversation with Remy. Um, he and I have had mutual friends forever. We kind of grew up together, and he was just like, "Listen, Dave, I know you love to hunt, but I really think you should try shooting a compound bow." There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. 
They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. For three days only, save up to 30% off bestsellers from First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store. They'll also have for sale the Bear Grease Trucker Hats and Camo. They're included in the sale and all the great gear on First Light. Whether you're fishing, shed hunting, scouting, sighting in rifles, or cutting lanes, your gear needs to keep up with all your spring and summer pursuits. The sale has you covered. Hurry, the sale ends May 16th. Shop now at firstlight.com, F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. Um, and I, I'd had a, an old bear recurve my whole life that my grandfather handed down to me and my dad kind of collectively. He's like, here, this is for both of you guys. And um, so I, I liked bows. I think everybody likes bows. Bows are super cool. But when Remy gave me one of his old bows and I started shooting a compound bow and I realized how how meditative it was because archery is one of those things where you have to slow your heart rate down and be focused at the same time. And that really related to what I was striving to be as a skier is, you know, intense, the things that I, the the tricks that I'm doing, a lot of them have never been done before. And so it's really, I'm, I'm at a high level. I'm, I'm basically, my goal is to reach the, the highest level that I'm capable of on skis yeah and so it's it's kind of intense but in order to reach that level you can't be you can't be overhyped about it because then you're gonna then you're gonna uh, pin the throttle too hard and crash um so you have to be focused but calculated and relaxed and calm and and that side of archery just spoke to my soul I mean, it was as soon as he put that bow in my hands and I went and bought my first 12-pack of arrows at Cabela's, it was right. like game over. I thought you were going to say, well, first, well, first 12-pack of Coors Light. And I realized, <laughs> I realized yes, I can drink beer and shoot. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I am in heaven. It's not recommended just, for guns, but with bows, just drink away. <laughs> so, like, give me a quick, it feels like this, and I want Yanni to talk to you about skiing because I've never skied. Um, but <laughs> well, we need to, we need to change that. Well, we will. All right. We're, like if we could ski right now, we'd go. Okay. But it'd be weird and we'd die. <laughs> uh, stick the landing and stick the arrow. Like arrow goes in the 12 ring, stick the landing on a gold medal run. Like what's the, I mean, you're describing the two differences, but, but those two success points, like what remove the audience from the skiing part. Just, just you. Yeah. Just me. And, and, that's that's something that I've always had. It, it's been both a benefit and a drawback for me as a skier because I have these natural mountain man tendencies where I don't need to train with a crew. I, I can train. I actually, some of my best training is by myself. I mean, not even not even by myself with a coach or by myself with a friend. It's just literally me and the half pipe. That's where I sometimes do my best work. And so, yeah, I, I can... I don't have a hard time removing the crowd from the situation because when I'm out there trying to do a new run or trying to land what might win a gold medal at the end of the day, I'm not necessarily doing it for the crowd. I'm not going to say that the crowd doesn't add to the experience and isn't awesome to, yeah. to, to have them stoked for it, but I would do it anyways. 
even if they weren't there. So um, they're eerily similar, those two feelings. Uh, and I, I would describe it in the sense that, um, especially when, it, when you look at the Olympics, right? The Olympics is every four years. I only compete in one event. So I work essentially on paper. I work for four years for 35 seconds in a half pipe. Yeah. It's four years of effort. It's four years of timing. It's four years of blood, sweat, and tears. And it all comes down to that one moment. And I would say that that is the greatest parallel that I, the bow hunting is actually the closest parallel that I've ever found to that same feeling with a bow more so than a rifle, more slow, more so than any other form of hunting, you have to practice quite a bit. You got to practice all year long. You got to stay fit. You got to be in shape. You got to do your scouting. You got to know you're going to be able to find the animals. Then when you get to the zone where you know you're going to find the animals because you've been doing all your scouting ahead of time and you feel confident that you can shoot because you've been shooting so much, you still have to see the animals. They still have to be in a place where you can make an effective stock. All those things have to line up. So that would be the that would be the parallel to me maybe qualifying for the Olympic team. It's like, okay, here I am. I'm ready for the Olympics. Yeah. I made it close enough to the I, elk. I'm I getting think I close. Yeah. yeah. But I still have to make the dang team. And then you make the team, you know, you get say you close the distance. You're you're hundred yards away now. And you can maybe maybe it's time to to blast off a little cow call, bring it in just a little closer into the into the zone. And that's me, you know making the qualifiers I, i've qualified you know top, for fi- finals at the olympics is top 12 okay i qualified I'm, I'm in the top 12 i get to compete in the finals at the olympic games that's that's that when you close that distance between 150 on an elk and then it all comes down to that one moment and can you execute so you're in range the elk doesn't know you're there the deer, whatever the animal you're hunting is doesn't know you're there can you still with your heart pounding with all of that pressure on you Still draw back, take a deep breath, and execute the shot that you want to execute. And that's kind of how it feels at the Olympics. It's like everything, everything goes to that one moment, but you can still totally fuck it up in that last moment. <laughs> you know, I, I, I joke often about the fact that my main job at the Olympics is to not blow it. You know, it's like you got there, you, everything is lined up, but you still have to not blow it in the same way that you have to treat hunting is the exact like same that. way hunting is like i know how that arrow how to get that arrow to that animal absolutely but there's plenty of i've times done it a thousand times yeah, i've done it a thousand times but and this last year i shot an elk right square in the ass <laughs> i was like oh yeah when he's coming in bugling I'm like, oh yeah oh yeah oh, oh daddy I'm gonna go, oh yeah he's 33 yards and he stops and i just shot him right in the ass and i thought yeah for me that for you jumping out doing the half play would probably be like jumping into the crowd you know, well, a terrible actually, mistake. Here's here's where the here's where my analogy falls apart. Right? Uh, at Is the your Olymp- wife coming back in or no? She's <laughs> no, no, a different analogy. <laughs> okay. Uh, here, my my analogy between comparing skiing and hunting. Uh, at the Olympics, I get three tries. <laughs> it's a best of three format. I don't know how many hunts are best of three formats, but uh, but because because that's how the Olympics went for me this year. Uh, I I was having on my first run potentially what would have ever would have always gone down for me in my mind as the best run of my life i was literally landing the tricks uh i was going higher and i was landing the tricks cleaner and making everything as smooth as i have ever done it and my ski just popped off 
and that would that would be kind of you know if we're if we're gonna I'm, I'm i'm as people are probably aware by now i'm pretty i'm a pretty big fan of analogies that would be the equivalent of your your rest breaking or your d loop breaking is like oh or maybe everything the, maybe the wind switching yeah or the wind switching exactly you did everything right and there's one thing that you have no control over it went wrong that happened on my first run and i was like i was kind of like i was a little flustered but but i've been doing this long enough that i can i can you know shrug my shoulders wipe the, wipe the dirt off my shoulders and go up and do another one it happened again on the second run and i was like this is ridiculous like this, first of all this kind of thing doesn't happen to me at all it, may, it maybe happens once or twice a season you have a you have a, we, we would call it a binding pre-release where your your binding releases in a situation where it shouldn't have and that'll happen to me once or twice a season and you kind of just you kind of just brush it off and move on it just happens the the amount of torque that we're putting on skis is more than any design any manufacturer ever intended skis to have any any they yeah. than they ever intended and so you don't get special bindings that are oh they are yeah custom they're, they're made for yeah my skis are custom made my bindings are custom made but i'm just saying but even then, those tolerances e- even then i'm pushing the level of the tolerances yeah. so at some point every once in a while you have a fluke binding issue it happens but to have it happen twice in one day and have it be have that day that it happens twice in one day be the olympic games was kind of ridiculous i mean it was silly and so i was going into my third run and i and I was kind of mad. I was mad between my second and third run. And I was like, is this really how this story is going to go? Like, after everything I put into this, is this how the story is going to go? Because I went through some pretty hard seasons getting back to the Olympics. Uh, and, but then I just kind of laughed, kind of the same way that you do when you are going on a hunt. And, and you're just kind of like, well, the wind switched, man. Like, I don't have any control over that. And that's how I, that's how I, that's like kind of that whimsical feel that I had yeah. going into my third run. It's like, no, I, I just reminded myself. I was like, look, man, you did everything that you were capable of doing and things went wrong. We're going to crank those bindings up as high as they go. On my third run, if I had crashed, my, my, my legs would have broken before my bindings came up. The dang things weren't coming off on that third run. We put them all the way at the top, which is, Obviously not that safe. Not something you. And would Yanni do. knows what bindings are, right, Yanni? <laughs> <laughs> I'm concerned that no one I else do. knows. Let, I don't know. Let me are. let me inform you. Bi- the binding is the thing that you you use to attach your foot to the ski. Okay, it's the thing that you click into. So you so there's a heel piece and a toe piece, kind of kind of similar to uh, just a, a pair, a really good pair of boots. Is like you okay. you click the toe in and then you click the heel in. That thing keeps you attached to the ski. Okay, so the binding. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure. And the dudes that are hardcore, uh, they I, I had a couple of people once tell me. Um, better the knees than the skis exactly. meaning, meaning that they're going to crank up those bindings so that that ski never comes off because they want to stay with their ski not lose it somewhere off in the woods if they crash or whatever they'd rather just have a blown out knee that's kind of that's kind of the approach <laughs> that i had to that third run is like right i'm for it because it's the olympics and because i've been working so hard to get here i'm going to crank these things all the way up yeah with the confidence that i'm going to land it i'm and worried so, i'm worried that people don't understand what you, like truly what you're talking about you're talking about because I watched the Olympic Games, um, kind of with Remy. We were texting back and forth when you won the gold. We're not talking about just I always jump up and do a couple spins and land. This is like how many how many rotations do you go through on one of these runs? Uh, Can you back up if we're gonna go <laughs> go here? Let's back up all the way to like yes. Tell us about the half pipe, the depth of the half pipe, because that alone, like to stand in the mi- in the bottom of the yeah. half pipe that these guys ride and look up at those walls that they're riding. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a decent skier. I'll ski yeah. most everything on this mountain that we're sitting next to. But to even come up to that lip 
and just confidently ski off of it and down to the half pipe, it's it's it gets no. you know gives it's me daunting. A butter, butterflies a little yeah. bit. You know, it, I would say I would say the half pipe is probably the most uh, daunting looking feature that you can ski on ski. Yeah. I mean, it's a twenty two foot wall, basically vertical wall. Most of the time, they're pretty icy because they construct these things and it's not like they can keep once they've constructed it they can't keep adding fresh snow so that it's nice and soft and chalky it's like no once you've built it it stays there so they're usually pretty icy and um the margin for error is really slim because i'm taking off and landing on the same surface just like half pipe on a skateboard or a bmx bike or anything else so if i pop a little too hard pop is our term for jumping if i jump a little too hard off the takeoff i'll land way out in the middle you know where it's flat and if I pop a little, if I don't pop enough, uh, then I'll land on what on the deck or on the coping where, which is the flat part beyond the vertical part. You following? Yeah, I'm getting it. So I lied. It's it's a daunting. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, no, no. I watched it, so I know what it looks like. I'm visually, but I just just the, de- the description of like I look at these hills. I'm like, I can't go down that. Like I'd hike up it and walk down it, but just just the description of being in your head speeding down that son of a bitch <laughs> going up the other side that's to me that is how much actual vert is is of the 22 feet is vertical wall how uh it's it's the last three or four feet is, four is near feet. vert it's actually not it's actually not 90 degrees it's about 80 86 to 89 anywhere in there depending on who's cutting it and right. how their night went last night or whatever so but another thing people have to think about is you compared the half pipe you know like to skateboarding and bmx but not only are you moving vertically, you are moving very fast horizontally. Yep. So you're adding. That's, that's one, of the, one yeah. of the main differences. Skiing and snowboarding half pipe are, are a half pipe that's built on a hill. It's, it's built yeah. da- parallel. It's built down a hill. So um, the way, the only way that we can generate enough speed, uh, we're going uh, my, I think my Olympic run, I averaged 17 or 18 feet out of the half pipe. So on each hit, I'm going 18 feet out of a 22 foot. How half fast pipe. are you going into the half pipe? Uh, 35 to 40 miles an Fuck hour. Fuck me. <laughs> I yeah. can't go like, oh but, but that's in the, that's in the flats. When I start, as soon as you hit the wall, you're, you're going up a hill. So you slow down. Slow quite down. A bit. I'm not going 35 miles an hour off the takeoff or I'd probably go 35 feet out. It's it. So, um, but so yeah, we're traveling, not only just not, we're not, we're taking off and landing on the same surface, but each air I'm probably, uh, eating up 60 to 70 feet of the half pipe. So from takeoff to landing, uh, is anywhere between 45 and 65 feet, Sweet. uh, down the half pipe. So yeah, it's, that's it's, uh 20 to 35 yards in archery terms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're going to keep bringing this There's back. a lot of travel. Uh, yeah. And each, each hit, uh, I guess since we're going there, I'll, I'll give you a, a good overview of, of my sport and what I do. Yeah. Don't be shy. We want to no. hear this shit. Like, um, this, so I average, uh, let me just say this for listeners. We're going to mm-hmm. get to my turkey hunting thing later <laughs> Absolutely. on. So if you're no, worried about, about talk hunting about talk, that. fuck it. Listen to the skiing <laughs> talk. It's way more interesting. We're going to get to that. Go. We'll get there. Um, I, on average, there's five hits uh, in a run. So it's, and it's oh, a combination. Really? That's it. Five or six. Sometimes there's six. Sometimes, most of the time it's five. Uh, occasionally there's a half pipe that's extra long. We'll get seven. Uh, and occasionally there's a half pipe that's extra short and we get four. But most of the time it's five or six. And you're scored on all five of those tricks. And if you do four out of five and, and mess up the the last one, you still get a fall score. It's just it's you can't you, get, you can't yeah. do well with a with a falling run at all. Um the judging is based around a, quite a few criteria, but just to simplify it, I'll say it's based around how high you go, the difficulty of the tricks that you do, 
and how well you execute those tricks. Uh, well, I'll, I'll do four. How well you execute the tricks and how stylish you are. And a huge part of free skiing, free skiing originated because we wanted to do things differently than all the other sports that were out there. We didn't want to race. We didn't want to wear spandex. We didn't necessarily want to ski the moguls anymore. We didn't want to do aerials. We didn't want to do anything that was similar to what was being done. We wanted to do things our own way. And uh, so style is a huge part of it. And a way that you can recognize good style is somebody who takes something that looks really hard and makes it look easy that's style or what we what we would call steez style and ease steez and uh so we're judged on all those four criteria and the guy who can do all four of those can go really high do technical tricks execute them well that means landing high carrying their speed well and add that element of style that's the guy who wins at the end of the day damn steez steez hashtag steez you got steez no i don't have style or ease <laughs> Make everything look harder. Um, I got to give basketball. You would know. <laughs> I got to give you skiers props too, because I came from snowboarding and probably went. I, I changed to being a skier in like two thousand and one, two, somewhere in there, and that was after twenty years of snowboarding, man. So I was like dyed in the wool, man. That was like my thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It was a skateboarder and whatnot. And so when skiers first started dropping into half pipes, I was like. What is this bullshit? <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> you guys don't belong in here. Yeah. But then, man, they progressed. And the next thing you know, snowboarders could only make it out 15 feet. And the next thing, now you're talking like you're, what'd you say? 35 18. yards. Yeah. Eight? 17, okay. 18. Was okay. So yeah. maybe I was off. They were going out at 10 and all of a sudden skiers were doubling that. You yeah. know? And that's. The reality is there, there's some are, physical, there's physical reasons for that, right? Right. Two on edges. a snowboard, you have one edge. On, on a skis, you have two. Um, there, there's things that are easier on a snowboard. There's, there's, there's things that are easier on skis. That's why I'm, I mean, the guys I like to hang out with and, and actually inspire me the most are snowboarders. A is lot that right? Them. Yeah. Because, uh, I think it's important to not spend too much time with people who are just like you. Yeah. And so there's things that I can see on, from the snowboarding guys that I'm like, ah, man, I feel like we could do that on skis. And that's where I draw some inspiration from. It's, it's sort yeah. of like a secret source because everybody's like, where do you come up with all this stuff from? And I'm like, well, I kind of cheat by <laughs> Those stealing it from somebody else. <laughs> I steal it from somebody that you aren't looking to. <laughs> I like that. Is there, um, you got a lot of adulation, right? You got a lot of people coming up to you saying like, thank you or congratulations or whatever people say. Adulation. That's a, that's a great word. I'm yeah, going to put that in my repertoire. Word of the day calendar. That's right. <laughs> Um, describe that the adulation. I mean, you just won an SP award, right? That's like, true. How many days ago? Not long. Ago. <laughs> What's today? It's Saturday. I won it on Thursday. Thursday. You were in LA, <laughs> walking the red carpet, all kinds of people. Now you're here, walking the walking, walking the, side, the mountains, walking the side of the mountain. Is that just? This has nothing to do with anything other than that adulation. You know, I know it's temporary in the in the Olympic sense. But as that adulation comes and as as people, you know, reap these things and, and give you praise, do you find yourself more defensive or do you fall into it? Do you fall into like, I I was great. Fuck it. Like I was great. Because you were. You were better than everybody in the world for that for moment, one moment. that time. I always wondered that about people that experience those crazy highs. You fall into that high and just be like, I'm going. Or is there some defensiveness like, man, I'm a skier. I just did that one thing really well. Yeah. They gave me a big shiny uh, thing, but that 
Is there somewhere in the middle there for you? Or what you was definitely the you get you get the gold medal for that question because that's a really good question. Um, I think I've I think I've definitely fallen victim to both both sides of it, and uh, I think the more mature you are, the more you realize that you, that stuff is temporary, and that adulation is uh, is fleeting, and that's why I think it's most it's more important to surround yourself with people who knew who you were before you had any success than it is to surround yourself with people who really like you. Yeah. Because I've, I, I think we've all seen it in Hollywood in, I mean, I'm sure we've all had, we all have personal experiences with people who had a little more success than they expected to, or they got what they wanted. And suddenly they weren't that cool to you anymore. Yeah. And that is the last thing that I want to have happen to me. You know, the reality is I feel like everything that I have is a gift. I didn't make myself. I, I didn't choose how, how, how tall I was going to be. I didn't choose the fact that I was going to grow up in a family that would, would sell out and support my dreams. Um, we didn't, as a family, we didn't go on a family vacation ever. The first vacation that I went to a sunny place where, you know, the sun shines and I could surf was with my wife after the first Olymp- after my yeah. first Olympics. It could, because, and I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm just saying that my parents, we sacrificed every dollar that we had and every moment of vacation time that we could to support both my ski career and my sister's ski careers. So um, that's, no, that's something I can't take credit for. How can I take credit for that? that? I didn't do any of that stuff. So realizing that even though for that one moment, I did execute as well as I could have, and I did win that gold medal, even in that moment, I can't take credit for it because yeah. all of those things that got me there were gifts. So um, I like to, sh- my, my goal with that adulation is to share it. I'm like, hey, look, I'm glad you're excited about what I did because I think skiing is super effing cool too. I, I think you should go ski half pipe. I really do. Yeah. So I want to, I want to sort of embrace that excitement around my sport and what I do. At the same time, I want to be like, look, this belongs to you too. This isn't just mine. And I, I, I'm just a guy who likes, who's doing what he likes to do. And uh, another one of my huge motivations in my public persona is, is inspiring kids to do what they want to do too. I don't care if it has to, happens to be half-pipe skiing or not, yeah. but I would, I would describe myself as not necessarily the most talented person ever. You know, I wasn't the kid who was a phenom. I was never the kid that people picked out from a lineup and said, that kid's going to be something someday. I just was born without that. I was born without the takes no for an answer gene. Like I just, I was just like, I don't really care how good I am now. I think I can get there. And I would just chip away at it one day at a time, one, one contest at a time, one, one trick at a time. All of a sudden, the kids who were the phenoms that everybody was talking about and saying that kid's going to be something someday were losing to me and they they didn't understand why. And so that's my, that's one of the main things that I try to talk to uh, the youth or, or even, just even adults. Cause everybody has something they can, they can be inspired by. That's what, always what I say is don't focus on where you're at right now. Don't focus on what people tell you. You don't have enough of focus on what you do have and make it a little better. What yeah. is it you want to do? Get a little better. And so um, that would be my, that, that's my, uh, six years removed pers- uh, perception of the adulation of of winning an Olympic gold medal is like yeah. it is uh, certainly one of the most overwhelming things, and 
I've spent time thinking I was the coolest thing in the world. And I've been reminded by, <laughs> I've been reminded by the people in my life who really love me that I'm not that, that I'm not that cool. I'm really just yeah. a nerd who likes to ski at the end of the day. So, um, I think it's important to surround yourself with people who know who you are deep down and not with people who are, who are, who are just saying your name and saying you're the coolest thing ever. Cause that's what happens. I think to, to people in Hollywood is they just, they get so much yeah. adoration and, the reality is those people who are coming up to you on the street, you could do something that was totally messed up and not cool. And they'd still be like, ah, I don't care. You're the coolest. And as soon as you get too many people like that around you, you're in a dangerous spot. Yeah. So I try to avoid that. I try to avoid having people in my core group who think anything I do is cool. I like to have the people around me who tell me, Dave, that was not that was not that that was not that tight. I don't like how you're treating me. <laughs> you know, you motherfucker. <laughs> you, I like that. You no. dick. I find I've, dicks. I've had a lot of, like most of the guests on this podcast have been, you know, high level hunting folks. I don't know how to describe like there's no comparison to what you do to hunting world type of stuff. But most of the people have have experienced some kind of adulation based on their hunting life. Yanni has to some extent. Like Sam has to some extent. There's these are tiny little blips on the radar. Yeah. But the, but these are still somebody come up to you be like, what you do is cool. Like that's the first time that happens to to everyone, whether you're hunting or skiing or whatever. I feel like that just kind of it can either go a good way, or it can go a really effing bad way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Do you think about that, Yanni? Ever like because you're? I mean, you're on the media yeah. It's podcast, good, good to I stay mean. humble. You know, stay humble. Sam, you. Stay I think humble? I'm just gonna go full bad way. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. let it go to just my start, head. Just start, really? just start handling, signing people, signing <laughs> autographs. Be like, you ever seen the bus? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, let me sign your baby. I always carry a sharpie. I sign a lot of things people don't want me to. <laughs> yeah. I've you ruined do. a lot of just you know like memorabilia that people yeah. got just for being I'm, at an event. I've drawn a lot of buses <laughs> on people's t-shirts. <laughs> so I'll tell you that right now. Um, no, I think Yanni's right. I think it's it's good to stay humble, and it's just you. At the end, I think the best quote I've ever heard as far as people in the hunting industry no matter how many people know who you are in the hunting industry you're not famous that's <laughs> <laughs> just all there is to it I, th I think that that's a very good equivalent david to can speak to well. that well yeah it's, uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter how big you are in skiing you're still just a skier you know and yeah that's a good way to put it it's yeah. totally fine um we're gonna spin this off now to the turkey topic because i really like to hunt turkeys and yanni is a big turkey hunter right yanni well how yeah. would you describe speaking your of being good at skiing turkey hunting yeah <laughs> now yanni what level of turkey hunter are you how much Ooh. how much compared to other game my, species my passion like yeah. right now it it might be number one you think so for me right now in at, at this time it's number yeah. one for me sam or is it ranked for you i would say probably number two behind behind, behind what I love deer hunting. Doesn't matter if it's whitetail or mule deer. I just love deer hunting. Okay. Okay. So, David, have you ever hunted turkeys? Let's let's let me bring up another analogy, since that's my that's my theme. My tonight. wife and turkey hunting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh, since I'm sitting with three very avid turkey hunters, I'm gonna be. Uh, I I heard a sportscaster this Olympics talk about how there should always be like a layman for every every time you have an intense. Uh, Olympic sport, you should always have somebody who's just a, a randomer pulled from the crowd so that everybody can understand exactly how hard this is. Uh, 
and and I think half pipe is a great example of that. Uh, where there there should be somebody who just skis up that thing and is terrified just to show you that it's actually terrifying. Yeah. Uh, like me. <laughs> like I, you. Yeah. Next time you I would film a, a, a pipe video, I'm gonna have you come and be the And it would the just lane. be me screaming. That's all you would hear. Like, Here it goes. <laughs> yep. Fuck. That was all of you would. <laughs> so I'm the turkey layman in the group. I've literally never, never turkey hunted layman. a turkey in my life. That's good to hear. Uh but it's sound, apparently because I respect all three of you and your opinions. <laughs> If you think turkey hunting is that dang cool, there must be something I'm missing. Because I grew up in Nevada where you got to put in for seven years and get seven years of bonus points to maybe draw a turkey tag. I like that. I like that that's, that's your... And I've never bothered is. because it's the wrong season. Well, there's elk and things. But yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, there's other things to... <laughs> other things to do like mule deer and elk and every other thing. Um, Yanni, t- yes, turkey hunting is the best because why? <laughs> um, speaking of being humbled, you can get your ass humbled on a consistent basis chasing those birds. And that probably is one of the reasons that it's hard in the moment. It's hard, kind of hard to say <laughs> when he just walks away from you and you get humbled. You're like, yeah, this is why I love it. In that moment, it's hard to say that. But looking back over the course of a season where I got to hunt 18 days and I think I killed three birds. Um, and I had probably for three birds that I killed, there was probably... 10 birds that I interacted with and, and I didn't kill them. Like, you know, and I could, again, I consider myself to be a good hunter. And so to, to ha- so have that playing field be right there, had I killed all 13, I don't know how I'd feel about it. Right. Sam ex- describes them sometimes like puffed up Roombas. Like they're just rolling around. They don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. Every time I, they- I like to believe they're so dumb that they're hard to hunt. Because <laughs> there is no rhyme or reason. The, yeah, a they, turkey really does never know where he's going. No, they right? have no idea. So I described it as a puffed up Roomba because they fly down, and then they puff up, and then they just walk around. And they like run into the edge of a field, and then they just go the other direction, and they hit that edge of the field, and then they go into the woods, and then like a half hour later, they just like pop back out. So you know they're in there just like hitting trees, <laughs> back and forth. Uh, yeah, and eating bugs, and you know, just chasing just like hens, packing shit. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Let alone, but let them see a glimpse of a coyote on the far side of that field, <laughs> three hundred yeah. yards away, and they're like, and yeah. they just melt into the ground. Yeah, yeah, just boop, boop, gone, gone. That's why they're so great because they're so unpredictable. <laughs> yeah, you don't know what a turkey's going to do because a fucking turkey doesn't know what it's going to do. That's right. And then huh. at some level, that switches on when that turkey knows what it wants and you know what it wants and you've got to play that game and you're talking to a raptor like that's for a mini for dinosaur like you, this is a mini dinosaur it sleeps it's a uh sleeps in trees and it's got raptor like hooks on the back of its legs and it flies down out and you talk to it and it comes in you're like hey i'm a hen what's up <laughs> i'm nice and it's like yeah okay i see you i see you like <laughs> I'm looking to have some, I'm looking to fuck. And then it's like, yeah, okay, I want that. Then it starts coming and maybe it's just hooking up. Like, are you really down? Like, I don't really see you moving around too much. And you got purr, get it in. Those last little bits of like tantalizing sounds that that turkey's going to have. And then it finally comes in, it checks up on the decoy and it starts to strut, spit, drum. And it's, it's like oscillating feathers and its wings are moving back and forth and it's just it doesn't have any idea what it's doing it's a room at that point because this is like <laughs> i'm about to get it on but i'm not sure how to do it i'm gonna take a couple circles and then like that moment happens when you're ready to shoot it and you shoot it and you always have like 
the flopping turkey is, in my mind, the number one thing you can see in the woods. Like that flopping turkey. So you're a guy that likes to flop. You don't like to just when they fold up and fall over. I'm not saying I like the fact that they're flopping <laughs> around. I just that like the fact that, that that entire dance has played out and now mm. I'm successful. I'm not saying I disrespect the thing as it's dying or like enjoy the death of it. But I enjoy like it gets me going to know that I've just had a conversation to some level with a wild raptor that sleeps in trees, flies down every morning and and has little to no chance uh, to really know what it's doing. But like that, that dance to me is, it's more intense than elk hunting, I feel like. Yeah, I'm still at the point where every time one is flopping or folds over dead, I'm kind of relieved and like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Like, yeah. I can't believe he's dead. Yeah. Yes. That's, I think, why the flop is such a satisfactory thing. Like, that happened. I did that. I used a fucking piece of wood. <laughs> to, <laughs> that some fella crafted to make noises to a, a giant, you know, bird that just came in here. Now I'm going to eat it. And it's going to be glorious. And some of the best meat ever. That's another reason, like you say, you grew up, Dave. Yeah, I think, uh, not to interrupt you, sorry. Uh, no, please I do. really resonated with the fact, uh, you, you you talked about this, uh, this thing that we're going to get into a little later, so I won't, I won't spoil it. But you talked about shooting enough turkeys to not have to buy white meat for yeah. the year. And that you you have like because that's so foreign to me turkey hunting hasn't appealed to me any more than it ever did in that moment when you said that i was like oh i could i could get into that yeah because the reality is in my house we don't eat any we don't eat anything that's red meat that's not game um i've and that's you know god given i've had some very successful yeah. years i've had a couple of a couple of years in a row three years in a row where i've been able to kill a deer and an elk and a couple times uh two two elk and a deer so i've got lots of meat around uh, i'm actually kind of getting getting dry so we're gonna need we're gonna need to go hunt again here pretty soon oh, but yeah. um being able to just pull from the freezer and never have to go to the store for red meat is amazing to me and and the quality is 10 times better so when you said that about white yeah. meat i was like man all right. You guys eat chicken. You that. guys eat chicken at home, yeah. like store bought chicken and yeah. lunch meat, like turkey and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You guys, Sam, you eat a lot of chicken, store bought yeah. chicken. And Yanni? Probably half dozen chickens a year. Well, now we have chickens. So it was probably last year. We, I don't know if we bought any. Bought a chicken. But, but prior to that, yeah. And Steve said this about like what his brother says is like the store bought chicken, you simply cannot replicate that from going up on the mountain. No. It's just like even shooting a wild turkey. You can roast that thing any special <laughs> way you want. You're not getting what you get when you take you out get a, a, a vacuum sealed thing that just lived in a barn and like stood in one area for. No, not necessarily. I mean, I mean, we grew chickens that basically just ran around our yard. And when you roast that chicken, man, it's a different animal. It's just been de- domesticated over, yeah, you know, over time. Yeah, and hmm. it's greasy and buttery, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been genetically bred. To be delicious. Exactly. Whereas the turkeys that we're hunting, the elk that we're hunting, the deer that we're hunting, even though they do so happen to be delicious, they didn't they weren't bred to be delicious. No, they the just are way. delicious. That not even if you put like little bowls of butter and garlic out in the field that they'd come and eat. <laughs> or maybe even in your backyard, would you ever feed them butter or anything like that? They eat scraps, you know, so I'm sure there's some butter in there sometimes. <laughs> That's not <laughs> Yanni's looking at me like a oh, fucking dumb question. <laughs> That's the dumbest question I've ever heard. All right. Well, we'll go back to here's my idea. Everybody has said it in this room. Like there's the red meat thing we're all dialed in on. If you kill an elk, you have a family of four, correct? Dave? Yep. 
Um, you've got a family of four. I've got a family of three, and you just live in a bus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. takes more than one elk. More than one elk. Yeah, right. In, in my house, yeah, yeah. yeah it does. For me, Same. it's like an elk. An elk and two or three deer is so much that you can give a lot away to the people that you care to share that with and get them excited about it, and still be well in hand with. Red Last deer. season, an, an elk and two deer was enough for me to be generous, not not overtly generous, but generous, and still feed my family. But I'm down to my like last ten pounds of meat. Then you're starting to get nervous around July. Yeah, I gave too oh, much yeah. away. Calling no, people that's up. why okay. I'm out here shooting. I need to. I need to be. I need to be ready to harvest when yeah. the chance comes. Right. But that's. I. I mean, if that happened to me every year, we're late July. I was kind of running out. That's you know. It's, it's a good, okay. good place to it's be. Not a bad place yeah. to be. No. Yeah, it's, it gets it's you nice excited for the season to come. And yeah. the reality is, because I've been, I've been in three years of plenty. Um, if I run out, I got hunting buddies who haven't. You know, yeah. and and there's a community sense in that aspect. They're like, "Oh wow, yeah, you you're right." When you shot those two elk that one year, and you gave me a bunch, huh? that was good. I got a lot in yeah. my freezer. You could always go to Remy's house. He's probably got oh my like, gosh, yeah. Don't even talk like to a, me about that guy. Yeah. Like, oh, I like to have some bongo and a little bit of tar beat. He'd be like, oh yeah, I got a couple of freezers full of that. Yeah, uh, we all know plenty of people that aren't getting through everything that they're killing. Right? No, no, not at all. I would put myself in that. It's just kind of you start to you understand like man we eat a lot of backstrap and tenderloin around my house this <laughs> <laughs> is a first world meat eating we're doing yeah. right now um but for the turkey part like my wife about two years ago my wife started saying to me i started getting frustrated with the chicken we were buying because i my thought was like let's buy chickens and slaughter them or so, figure something out and she just said i don't want to eat red meat all the time i want other options um, and i was frustrated with the nitrate turkey meat we were eating and the, the Purdue chicken that we were buying. And of course, over that time, we've shifted those types of habits to make sure shit's organic and a little more comfortable with that. But at the same time, it's like that doesn't jive with my the way that I want to live my life, the way that I want to eat my meat. And so it feels like a little bit of a fallacy to be like, I'm a wild game guy, you know, eat what you kill type thing. But then when it comes to white meat, you're like, ah, I'll buy a chicken here or there just to make sure we have a little variety. And so we, I try to sit down and think about how many turkeys I would have to shoot to eliminate the chicken that we bought. Now, I also put, for point emphasis, I put in there like doves and, and pheasants and or uh, quail in Texas. Like how much of that do I need to have to make sure that we don't have this first world problem, but a problem nonetheless for the lifestyle that we want. And I came up with 10 turkeys, legs, breast, entire thing, for a year would get my family there's three of us get us through without having to buy any chicken or any lunch meat or anything like that so that's my mission now that's been two years ago and then in that time of my goal of killing 20 turkeys i've killed i think eight of them but i still have that goal every damn year to kill 10 turkeys how'd you come up with the number i looked at how much yield you get from turkey breast and how much if i cook a full turkey breast is i put on the trigger and smoke it or whatever how much we can get from that. So we generally would get just from that, just just kind of medallion roasted turkey. We could generally get one dinner and about three or four or five lunches from one breast, depending on what we were doing. And so then you're looking at two breasts off one turkey is going to get you through generally two weeks of, of living. And tried to say if we meet our consumption of white meat then we would eventually get to the fact where we got 20 breasts 
20 legs that we can get through any needs we have generally for what ends up being about 10 months of time before you can refresh and get get back to it that's it's all just guesswork but yeah from killing like three or four turkeys a year no, that's to, like a breast every three weeks roughly yeah. somewhere it seems good it's yeah. like just under a whole turkey a month yeah something like that yeah and because a lot of states montana we were talking about you can kill five turkeys if you get real real western and in texas you can kill four if you just buy a license in a lot of states south dakota you can kill two merriams yes yep uh, you can kill two. Yes, you can. But can you, you can kill, kill two archery. and then go to the Black Hills and kill another one, or is it no? Just- you can. Well, yes, you can. You can buy leftover tags even as non-resident, so you can get more than more than two tags. But um, if you're just doing it like right off, like if you just want to buy two over-the-counter tags, you can get a statewide archery and a Black Hills shotgun tag. Okay, so so you do it. And yeah. then Montana, what's it look like, Yanni? Uh, four regions where you can get a, ter- a specific region specific turkey tag and then um i think there's two regions where you have to use your statewide tag um but so basically five toms per spring yeah texas you buy non-resident license you can kill four turkeys and there's no i don't think there you can kill you can have your entire take in one day i think and then you know you say you're living in montana or living somewhere out west you've got a bunch of drivable states Mm -hmm. to the point where you can get to 10 if you work at it pretty hard the way that season goes. Yeah. You know, and yeah. And there's only more and more turkeys everywhere, it seems like. So it should mm-hmm. get just easier. It's a healthy for you to population. Get it's a healthy population. David, is this convincing you full on to go turkey? I, I think I got to experience it firsthand first yeah. and, and, and think it's as cool as you guys do. But. You're invited. Um, yeah. I'm a la- <laughs> I think I mentioned at the beginning, I'm an, I'm an opportunist. I'll hunt anything at any time trade. with any weapon. I mean, I, my preferred thing to hunt is big game with a bow. But uh, I'll absolutely hunt turkeys. Sure. Sounds cool. If I convince you, Yanni, to go. I'll come along. Yeah. Let's go with me. As maybe. much as I can. As much as you can. 10. Do we Do we need to talk a little bit about like archery hunting turkeys versus. Fuck yeah. Ooh, yes. This is something. Okay. So here, here's, here's my layman's uh, uh, perspective I'm adding to the conversation. Uh, I notice that most people hunt turkeys with shotguns anyways. Even people who are diehard archery fans who would only some guys who are like no man i only hunt with a bow i do not hunt with a gun we'll still hunt turkeys with a shotgun why is that that doesn't make sense to me as a bow hunter okay i'm as a a bow guy i would call myself a bow hunter but i will never again my life hunt turkeys with a bow because people can write in to the uh, addresses that uh, don't exist at some level she'd write in and tell me like where there's archery, I'm sure in this country there are archery-only turkey seasons at some level. I'm I'm positive of that, but that is not the norm in any way. And so most times you are choosing, unlike with an elk or there's you are choosing the less effective tool for whatever reason. And I and I'm I'm telling you it's less effective, and I'll argue that with anybody. For the point of, imagine if you put a you know a cantaloupe on a string. And you, it was walking around. And you're trying to shoot with a bow. That's hard enough, but we do that as archers. We do it. But imagine now if you covered that in feathers, and wings, and a tail fan that move and oscillate and adjust as it comes into strut and out of strut. And now those vitals are kind of they're not moving around in its body, but from your vantage point, that turkey's body is adjusting and moving and becoming a different size or at least a different silhouette. That's the problem with turkeys okay 
because you can be aiming for the wing butt if it's or the base of the beard with a broadhead. And if that turkey goes into strut and then out of strut, your aiming point becomes different. Hmm. And I've I've watched some of the better archers that I know of put ten ring turkeys and watch them fly into a tree with a luminoc and sit there all night hmm. and be down the next day. So given that fact that I've seen, like there's no way that you can say I kill every turkey I shoot at with a bow because I'm the best at archery. Like there's just too many variables. Okay. It's just not effective enough. Well, then also to, to add to the point where we're talking about eating turkey meat, you are shooting it at some level when it's broadside right through the meat that you want to eat. Yeah. And when you shoot it with a shotgun, you're shooting its face off and I've never eaten a turkey face in my life. And so it just, to, at the end of the day, I was like, there's almost no reason that you can tell me that if you couldn't pick up a shotgun, you wouldn't. And I would also argue on a third point, you can tell me, people tell me if I'm wrong, but hunting with a shotgun, you're able to move around more and run and gun as they call it. Like call a turkey in and move as it moves as opposed to popping up a blind, sitting in and putting out a decoy and waiting for it to walk in. Because with drawing your bow, you need concealment. A pop-up blind or a stationary blind allows you to just sit there and draw relatively in undercover. Mm. Whereas if you're just sitting against a tree, you got to draw out in the open. Turkeys have historically amazing eyesight. So for all those reasons, I don't see myself ever picking up a bow and pointing at a turkey. Yanni. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. Am I... Yeah, you're spot on. I feel like too, like the the again the playing field that I like to talk about, like where I'm happy with the challenge of it all, right? Because big reason I hunt, right? Adventure, challenge. I'm not just out there to put some meat in my freezer, but like it's hard enough with the shotgun, mm, right? Yeah, and the distances <clears throat> they're pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Most guys sh- won't shoot past 40 yards with a shotgun at a turkey, right? So you still got to get them close. You know, bow might need to be a little bit closer, but uh, I feel like you've kind of executed all the fun stuff, you know, whether it's this or this at that last moment. Yeah. 
And I think, in the, quite honestly, and there's some people that are my friends will hear this and be like, you know, fuck you. But we've gotten to this point where I like, I'm only an archery hunter, or my brand or my thing that I do is archery only all the time. And that's what I am. That's who I am. So I can't be seen with a gun or it'd, seem, it'd be like cheating <laughs> yeah. or whatever. <laughs> you lose like, your steez, man. If yeah, you, man. If you lose yeah, your steez. <laughs> hashtag steez. We're looking for a hashtag still at 20 episodes into the podcast, so maybe that could be it. But yeah, you're losing your steez, man. And it's just, I think that's why there you, you, you look around nowadays in turkey hunting and there's a lot of people using bows. And again, People can correct me if I'm wrong. At the same time that you release that arrow, you could be releasing a payload of pellets that will that will destroy that thing's face and, and drop it and flop it rather than having it run away with an arrow sticking out of it. And so there's ethics, there's morality, there's just like remove your own personal preference and put yourself in a place of that turkey. I'd much rather get shot in the face than have to suffer with a freaking, you know, Tom bomb in my... <laughs> but Fair enough. I, here's the only other point to make. There's a lot of guys that shoots the gobbler guillotine or or these these uh, broadheads, like the Magnus bullhead or yeah, anything like that. That broadheads yeah. that are designed to lop the turkey's head off yeah. fully, which is a pretty gruesome activity to do. But for most of the time, you either are going to miss completely, yeah, or you're going to so take its head off. There's the example of where I'm wrong. Okay, like I put my my gobbler guillotine with its what are the cutting diameters on one of those things? All right, so you have well, on the guillotine, I think there's four blades. Yep. And so you have four three-inch blades. And so you actually have six inches. Like a like, square kind of? Like yeah, it's like a, a square. square. But you have a, yeah. So you actually have a larger, like, kill zone. Because, like, if, say, if you're aiming at the head, you can miss two and a half inches either side of the head. And so you've got a, whatever, a seven-inch target at hmm. that point instead of trying to hit, you know, a golf ball at the center of the body for the vitals. And anybody's experience, Yanni, you're saying guys that are using archery tackle are shooting heads or bodies. Like, what's the percentage? I don't know. I see. So, I see a, so, not a lot of people shooting heads off. No, I don't. So see. I've so I've done both. And the reason I like to not like to archery hunt turkeys, but the reason I archery hunt turkeys because it allows me to get more turkey tags. So in like in say Nebraska, the first I think it's the first two weeks of the season, you can and it's really a lot of times it's too early to be turkey hunting. They're not really fired up. They're not getting after it, but you can start hunting late March, and if you're in the Midwest, it's a it's a spot to go, and you can start turkey hunting, and it's just with a bow. And so it does keep a fair amount of people out of the out of the woods, yeah. which is kind of fun. It's a little bit more peaceful, but at the same time, in my I've filmed a few turkey hunts, and I've been on a bunch of turkey hunts, and average percentage with a bow without using like the guillotine is about fifty fifty as far as like birds shot to birds recovered. Are we talking bird shot to birds wounded or birds killed? No, like birds hit and recovered 50%. You never find 50% or die like right there. Yeah. That's Hmm. too much. It's way too much. It's not a good percentage. But then uh, I've had some people that hunt with me that have switched to the, you know, the guillotine or the Magnus bullhead and you put your decoys at six or seven yards. And so you're not worried about arrow flight. And that's, a much higher percentage. Yeah. Especially, I mean, if it's hit, toast. Yeah, and if it's missed, it's missed. You may yep. chop a feather off here or there or whatever. Mm, yep. And in that case, you're not putting a, an arrow through its wing button, its breast, and then you pull its breast down. It's got a hole, you know, a damn hole right in the front, in the middle of it that you can't eat. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I have a, 
again, from the layman's perspective on turkeys, but um, in the sense of hunting birds with a bow, I've, I've actually had some very similar experiences because I shoot a lot. I, I like to hunt quail with my bow um, and I've hunted some geese with my bow and I've had the same experience where uh, occasionally I would pass an arrow right through what I would consider the boiler room on a goose or a quail or um, a chucker or a pheasant yeah. and have them fly off. And you know you killed you know that 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 bird is going to be dead but you don't get to recover it, it you know because because like you said the vitals move around a yeah. lot so I, i've actually switched when i when i'm hunting small uh bird you know small game birds with my bow i sh- i shoot for the head because that for the same reason that you're talking about with the guillotine the guillotine stuff is uh if i if i miss i miss and yeah. i didn't hurt the animal but if I if I do hit it, then it's 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 done. Yeah. It's, it's game over. Yeah, I think that spins off well to something that we all experience here at the Total Archery Challenge now. So we're a you know big sky resort, and there's a lot of country here. There's a wide open country. It was if you're hunting elk in here, this is this is it. This is good western elk, bear, mule deer, whatever country. There's courses at the Total Archery Challenge where a lot of your shots are, as we were saying earlier, shots that you likely wouldn't take or be moan to take, you know, last day type of shots where you're like, ah, I think I can do it, I'm, but I wouldn't take this on day one or two of a hunt. Um, what, you know, I'd like to hear everybody talk about this is an archery. It's not an archery tournament. Nobody gets scored. It's not, it's not marketed as practice for hunting in any way. But in all of us are, you know, wearing our hunting boots. We're wearing our hunting packs. We're shooting the same damn bow. We'd be shooting at an animal. And to to be practicing or to be, you know, having fun with shots that we know we wouldn't take in the field. Uh, Yanni, start and tell and just talk about, like, is that the right way to go? Is that setting expectations for hunters that come to these deals that, yes, you should be proficient at 128 yards on a, uh, on a deer or something like that at some of these shots are i mean it's something to talk about because i think it's an issue that uh is important yeah for sure um we shot 25 targets today right uh, yep and we felt like three or four were were definitely way like no matter what yeah we're talking 122 never, yards you we're never talking about 92 e- even yards. if even if it was uh, elk I'd already hit and I was going to go for a follow-up shot, I probably wouldn't wing one at 120. I'd yeah. probably be trying to get closer before I let one fly at 80. And you should be able to get closer than 120 or not shoot. Yeah, basically. that's... A, well, yeah, but I'm talking about yeah. like, the reason I do even have a tape that goes to 92 or whatever it is now is that if my first shot, however good or bad it is, once an arrow's in him, I'm going to try to get as many arrows as I can mm-hmm. if he's still standing. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so that's really what I'm always thinking when I'm sitting there at home practicing at 80. Like, why am I doing this? Well, shooting at 80 definitely makes 40 yard shots a lot easier. Sure. But it almost happened to me last year. Stuck one at 40, was still on his feet at somewhere out there, but the timber was just too thick and I couldn't really slide one in there. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's good practice for hunting. I like these like real situations at home. Yeah. I try to set up my targets as as real as I can. Because um, there's shots that are downhill, uphill, through lodgepole timber. They're mm-hmm. you know through a bunch of you know, young pines that you're trying to shoot around the corners. That that's all real real stuff. Yeah, and uh, you see things that you might not see just shooting level ground at home. Like the one thing that we kept seeing, we'd shoot like across the ski run, and you guys, we all saw the shot the same course today, right? Mm-hmm. 
And a couple of the shots I'd set up and be like, oh, just feels so good. And I look at my bubble and I'd be like, holy cow, how so can I wrong. be so canted? Yeah. And just you're looking at the ski, you're standing, you, you see the angle of the ski run under your bow and you start to can't, can't, can't to get that bubble center again. And you really can't believe how yeah. torqued you feel almost, yeah. you know, to get your bow straight. So that I, I noticed that my, sh- whether it's psychological, psychological or, or what, I noticed that my shots fell down the hill. When we were shooting across the slope, I never shot into the slope. I always would, and I, I'm sure that was a bubble issue. Because I always, my part of my process is I draw back, make sure I'm level. But but the the time between making sure you're level when you're focusing on that bubble and when you're actually really focusing on the pin and where it is, uh, you can still slide back out of level. And I think that that must have been what was happening because I had a lot of shots that were just a little bit more either left or right going down the hill yeah. than I expected them to be. Yeah, I think maybe at some point when you're shooting at 122 yard, what was that a an antelope of some kind? It was an African, like it was like a gazelle. gazelle I maybe. say, yeah. yeah, it's just some. <laughs> it was a small, it was a small bodied deer animal, and it's at down down the slope yards. at 125 yards. I would prefer to have them all closer. Yeah, I, I am gonna go home. I, I do at my house want to someday have whatever out to as far as my bow can shoot until my sight maxes out again. Just because I feel like if you practice a bunch at 120, all of a sudden the 70, it starts to become like a three pointer. Well, yeah, right? I think that's what I think that's what Ben's trying to get into is is are we are we spending too much time shooting long and creating unrealistic um, comfortability with long shots? Because yeah. the reality is, uh, as a Western hunter, I've only ever hunted open country spot and stock, and having shot a lot of shots at 100 yards. When I have an opportunity to 100 yards and I know I can't get closer, gosh, I'm tempted sometimes. You start yeah. thinking about it. I, I start it, thinking about it. I think it also comes down to influence, though. Like there's some level of influence that 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 maybe we don't even understand. One, how we influence other people. You know, have if we start normalizing these type of shots, and then people that are coming up are like, "Hey, I'm I'm following these folks and and learning from them, and and this is what how they do it. Well, this must be the way." You know, if I go Western hunting, I better be dialed into 80 yards. You're like, wait a minute. No, <laughs> you don't start thinking like that. Yeah. Um, so that's one problem. That's problematic. But I, to, to argue against my own point, I think we all figured out after shooting that 125-yard target, we don't want to do that. We ain't going to do that. We ain't yeah. going to do it. So it was nice in person there, tangibly, to say, I'm not doing that. Like, yeah. maybe, maybe I would if I practiced for about a decade. But at yep. this point, I'm more likely to hit grass and skip and hit it in the leg than than anywhere near it. Now, yeah. It's quite the rabbit hole because really, at a hundred yards, I mean, those arrows take a long time yeah, to really get to that animal. To and then you start, you know, talking about you know, the animal moving, the wind picks up while your arrows in the air, all kinds of variables. Yeah, even just a single step by an animal, you know, changes the where your impact is by two to three feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I think the one, I mean, this is a fun event, you know, it's for, it's people to come out and you, you get to see that magical flight of the arrow, you know, going that far. Um, you know, if you came out and you shot 25 targets and the furthest one was like 40 yards, you'd try to figure out why you were hiking around the mountains shooting 40 yards. <laughs> but uh, I think the one thing it does do is when you start to stretch out your shots with a bow, it amplifies all your imperfections in your form. Mm. And so if you say at 20 yards, you got a grouping, you know, a two to three inch grouping, and you're feeling pretty good about that. Well, when you move out to 70 yards, you know, you might be 
barely hitting the target. And so it forces you to look at how you're shooting and be more consistent in your shots. And I think everybody needs to, you know, really take a good look at themselves and figure out what their effective range is in the field. And it most likely shouldn't be, you know, over 60 yards or whatever it might be for you. But I think shooting those long distances, like Yanni was saying, is if you become proficient at shooting 100 yards, that 60, 70 yard shot feels much more, not a chip shot, but much easier. That target looks so much bigger at 70 than it did before when you were only practicing. Yeah, you're just holding your bow steady. You're steady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, the perspective is huge. If you, Yeah, anybody listening to this, go shoot at 80 yards for a week. Yeah. And then start at 20 and be like, what? Yeah. So, this is simple. Yeah, I read, uh, here's a little insight that I picked up from a, from a non-archery perspective about how to shoot better. Um, I read a, psych, a book on psychology uh, it was a sports psychology book and um, somebody was actually talking about sniper training in there. And he was saying uh, he would train, he was a sniper training instructor and he would train them to shoot. Uh, they would practice at only two different yardages or two different distances, super, super, super far, like the absolute limit of how far you can shoot and very close. Uh, because the, the, the very close shots trained the mind, uh, a different type of confidence, like all four of us after having shot today at, you know, I think the average range was probably 75 yards Se- between, that, between so. 65 and 75 yards. Yeah. Uh, that's what was, that was the average we shot today. I think after shooting that all day, if we went out and shot, uh, 3d targets at 25 to 35 yards, we would just feel lights out. And so those short shots though, f- really train your mind to be confident that you're going to hit what you're going to hit when you shoot. And so uh, this psychologist's argument was you should practice the hardest thing for you and then build confidence with the easiest thing for you. So that's how I practice with my bow when I'm getting ready for hunting season. I, I, I practice at 100 yards, which is, which is how far my range goes at my house. Uh, I practice there more often than anything else. That's where I'm like, because I, I feel like if I can hit something at 100 yards, then I can for sure hit it at 60. Uh, but I also almost always end the day with a, a, a nice round of five arrows at 20 yards. And I'm mm. just like, yeah, smacking. You go to bed, you're like, I had yes. a good day on the range. And yeah, you know what's nice about that? Because I do the same thing. I have a bag target that a buddy built for me, which by the way, man, Dude, you got to try this out. I mean, we literally, out of my house is under construction right now. <laughs> there's some kind of a poly, like a woven bag. And we had a bunch of leftover Visqueen that was getting ripped up and it wasn't doing its job anymore. So we sat there, two or three guys holding the bag and another dude jumping on top of the Visqueen to fill it up, tied it off, spray painted elk on there. And out of my compound at 20 yards, it's, there's probably only like <laughs> 10 and 12 inches of penetration. That's it's unreal awesome. for out of like made out of trash. Anyways, back to uh, 20 yards, last shot. Yeah, it's so nice because it's just all form. Yeah. You're like, you're not even thinking about aiming anymore and you're just thinking about a nice clean release. Just and and because back. you've been practicing at 100 yards, holding steady at 20 just feels like just Well, that, that goes back to archery as a mental game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reason I want to talk through this is I wasn't really sure where the hell I stood on it. I'm like, I can see somebody coming here and never having shot long distance and be like, why well, must I have to do this now? Um, on game. And so maybe there's a rule where we say, like, if it's past 80 yards, it's got to be a block target. God damn it. Can't be 
some you know facsimile of some yeah to me i guess real quick before i forget to me i just don't i I don't mind shooting as far as we can all shoot but to me this isn't the place for it yeah like i would just instead of having those 120s out here i'd rather have you know mix it up and give me another 80 and a 50 and a 30 good point and just something that i'm gonna encounter a little bit more more, a little bit more variability yeah 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 Yeah, like like this just what are we doing right because when you're training you're understand you have an understanding Every you know, all everybody sitting here, like I'm training, I know what I'm doing. Like this is my process. And when you get out here, you're just like, I'm having fun, but you're not really realizing the influence it might have on on what you might do in the field. Hmm. Because you're not you as you think about things, you're having fun. Oh, I'll take it, I'll take a crack at her. And if that I'll take a crack at her mentality gets shifted into the woods, nobody wants that. Right. Um, and so that's that's a slippery yeah, slope. I don't want to be sliding down with a bunch mm-hmm. of folks. You know? I have a I have a thing I want to interject before we move on to some other topic um, that I think relates well compared to how I train for skiing. And it's the idea that I I always train for the absolute worst case scenario. I always I would rather my goal at the end of uh, you know, this actually right now is a perfect time to describe right now. I'm in the, I'm in the off season. I'm not competing. And the next contest I have is in December. So I have quite a bit of time to really, uh, work on fitness and strength. And, um, a lot of what I'm doing anymore is training my nervous system just as much as my muscles. So, uh, it doesn't do me a lot of good just to be the strongest dude out there. I have to both be strong and extremely quick and explosive. So, um, a lot of the things that I do are all jumping oriented. So I will train in a way that I'm trying to actually do more. I'm trying to be more powerful than I would ever need to be. I'm trying to be, have better balance than I would ever need to actually have in the half pipe because you're only, you're, you're training for worst case scenario. I'm training for those bad landings. The reality is the good landings, I don't need to, tra- I don't need to spend a lot of time in the gym for those because, yeah. uh, especially in a half pipe, if I land high at the top of the wall, then the G forces aren't that high because, because I'm catching the transition perfectly. So those good landings don't need the training as much as the bad landings do. So I'm always training for, I'm, I'm training the fringe. I, I talk a lot to kids I mentor about training the fringe, pick what you're not good at and just train it until you're good at it again. And, and even the things that you're good at, take them to uh, where you're all, where you're uncomfortable. And, I'm, and, and know that you're uncomfortable with those things. And I'm not saying that you should do those things that you've just been training in competition. Yeah. Because you don't. But at the end of the day, when I'm crafting a run that I'm going to do in a big contest like the X Games or the Olympics, I'm always choosing a run that I know I can pull off. It's not something that's like, well, there's a couple of tricks that I can pull off and this one right here is a Hail Mary. I'm never doing that. <laughs> uh, it's always calculated. And that's how I feel about what we're doing out here hunting-wise. I, I kind of agree with you, Yanni, where I, I think it's maybe maybe the averages have got because it's a total archery challenge and it's like, oh, we got to make it a challenge. Maybe the averages have gotten a little too crazy. And there's a little bit, there's a few, there's a few too few shots that I would practically take as a hunter. Uh, I would like to see a few more of those, but at the same time, I'm like, you know what? I don't mind taking those weird shots that I wouldn't, that are, that are the fringe of what I'm capable of sure. because I'm training the fringe. Um, 
I think we should talk about our scoring system because that is what... <laughs> now, um, that would go go all the way back. That's Remy's scoring yeah, system. Yeah, Remy and yeah. I came up with that scoring system when we first started shooting yeah. these totally our, total archery challenges yeah. together. And it's a good way of keeping yourself in it because you talked about how uh, you kind of get out there and after you've lost like three arrows, you're just kind of like, I don't know, I ran out of fucks to give a while ago. You know, and you just start you just start drawing back and flinging arrows, and you don't stay very mentally in tune to it. So Remy and I came up with this system we call Kill Wound Miss, and it's just a scoring system. Rather than scoring the rings uh, on the all these, most of these are Reinhardt targets. So rather than scoring the 10, 12, uh, or 12, 10, 8, 5 uh, scoring format, we just kill it. We just score it as if you kill it, you get a point, and if you wound it, you get a negative point. A miss, an outright miss is zero because we were trying to relate it as closely as we possibly could to actual hunting situations where a kill is a good thing, a wound is absolutely the worst thing that we want, and a miss is actually not that big of a deal. You know, I think every archer in the world would rather miss a deer than wound it. Agreed. So yeah. we we came up with this system, and we all obviously, as we're all competitive dudes, we once we came up with the system, then we started, then then came the wagers. So it's for us. Because we're shooting a course that's super challenging, it's got more shots in, in it than I would ever take in a hunting situation. Uh, but I, the the scoring helps keep me focused because Sam and I were going back and forth today. We both shot really good the first couple targets, and then we both got on the struggle train, and we struggled to get off the struggle train towards the end. And uh, but it was just fun because it was like, okay, no, it's every shot, it's a new shot, and and I'm still getting a, some kind of a point for this. So I thought that was a really good way to score. Uh, a 3D archery uh, target shoot because yeah. it, it it teaches you also to just shoot for the shape of the animal rather than trying to trying figure to out where a, the yeah. rings are. Hit a circle or whatever. Yeah. So what did you score today? 25 targets. 25. I I, uh, I wounded. You got a 15. I right? got a 15. Yeah. That is freaking high. I scored an 11 today. I got a uh, fucking one. <laughs> Four. We had a guy in our group score 20. Yeah, on the, Light on the prime out, course. On the prime course. So 20. did he wound any? He wounded yep, two. He wounded two. He so, wounded two. So he actually two. hit twenty-two in the vitals. So he wounded two, missed one. Yep. Yeah. He was right. he nearly Mike Collins works for Prime. He is. He nearly shooter. he nearly cleaned it because yeah. uh, he cleaned that course. Yeah, and one the one that he missed. He just forgot to change his slider and he shot side. like a hundred yards over a turkey. At he 45. didn't have a Yanni sticker on his bow. I'll send him one. Yeah. Yeah, Yanni, tell can, them, tell can, them about can, your Yanni sticker. Custom, we were talking about selling these stickers. I can custom make him one real quick tonight. It says return. It's, it's a piece of ga- orange gaff tape that says uh, return to zero. Yeah. I That's like, just like I the like game. That. I said, we're so what's terrible archers. We're like, we're just trying to return to zero. <laughs> 25 target game. <laughs> the, the, yeah. The, trying to get back. Ups and downs. Positive. Yeah. That's, I mean, we, I think the best in our group, there was 12 people shooting in our group, and I think the best was nine. Yeah. Something like that. So 15. I shot an 11 and I got fifth. What? Yeah, we had a dude. I've shot this this well. This scoring we shot with, system. Yeah. yeah, I've got this scoring scoring system maybe eight or so rounds, and I don't I don't think I've yeah double digits is rare. Well, we had Mike Collins one. Did you no Corey Jacobson? He shot a seventeen. Yep. What? Yeah, you shot yeah, fifteen, yeah. and then somebody was in between me and you. Yeah, I, I laugh because Corey and but, I, like I said, we're competitive dudes. We all go back and forth. We started, you know, chirping yeah. in each other's ears and stuff. Yeah. Corey and I started talking. Uh, 
And uh, he had one target where he was just in the kill zone. And I was, I mean, I was inches out, but you missed by inches. It's still a wound. And uh, that was the, that was the difference between Corey and I, but it was fun because um, we were, I feel like we were all actually competent level archers. I mean, comparable level archers. Uh, Sam and I both shot the first seven targets clean. And, and of course, and I look back on it, this is what I do with skiing too. I always look back and I'm like, gosh, you're such a dummy because as soon as we shot the first seven targets clean, my mind as an arrogant dude was like, <laughs> ah, I got the first seven. I can get the, I can get all the rest of them. Visions, we, of, we, visions, of, visions of glory. We, yeah. we shot yeah. the first seven clean and then both of us dropped target eight. Yep. <laughs> I missed and he wounded it. I got to get back on the course. <laughs> I'm fired up now. I feel like, yeah. I feel like I get it back. One is not enough. I yeah. think I like, wounded nine. That's good them. real, real time, real level training, right? Or real what am I trying to say? Um, Tyson, for the real world of hunting yeah. is is trying to is not letting visions of glory yeah. or grandeur. Yeah. Exactly. That is such a real thing, and I yeah. battle it all the time. That turkey's gobbling and coming in, and like you're talking about, you're like you can see the freaking turkey nuggets. You vision, <laughs> you're like you're he's going to be you flopping can, right you there. Can taste it, you can taste it. You're oh, like yeah. that turkey's done. You're already, already like I can just imagine jumping out of the pickup truck. Oh no, I didn't get one. Besides this, you know, like all that stuff's going oh, through yeah. your head where you should be just going like. I need to kill that bird. I need yeah. to shoot him in the head. I need to shoot him in the head. Yeah. What is this turkey doing? What should I do next? Yeah. What is the absolute? What, yeah. what, what, like in this focus, moment, focus, what do focus, I need focus, to do? Focus. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, I think I might change my flight just so I shoot tomorrow <laughs> and get back, like figure this out. Yeah. I think so you I should like, change your flight just because Montana is so great. Yeah, that also I, as well. 100% uh, agree. We shot together in South Dakota. Nobody was doing that good. No. What's the difference? We shot horribly in South Dakota. That's the difference. Yeah. What'd you shoot in South Dakota, Sam? Like a negative one. It was yeah. terrible. So what the hell? So the day before, so I'm going to give this a disclaimer. The day before, I actually shot very well, but we weren't keeping score. We started like a couple targets. Then yeah, we, we just kind of shot. Around. But I was like, I was just shooting. And then the next day, I fell apart. <laughs> so <laughs> let me let me just, I don't want to ask this question. Today, were you guys super competitive and like all really dialed in on on the achievement of the score? Yeah, we were. We were all Pretty. being comp- super competitive from the get-go. Yanni and I shot in a group of 12 people, and it was not. It was just like... Half the group didn't yeah, keep score. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, so and that's it. Do you it feel like that group, could be the difference? That's that, the difference. That yeah. like you're just thinking, okay, you're dialed in. You're playing. You're shooting. I don't know. Up. Yeah. I, I think it's my fault. I really do. Because <laughs> I, I can't do things halfway, man. Like <laughs> I don't show up and not wager. Yeah. I don't show up and not compete. Like Even though I suck at golf, I show up to golf tournaments, and I'm like, man, I'm going to be a longest drive. I don't care if it's three fairways <laughs> over. I'm going to do something better than everybody else. So as soon as we got on the course, of course, for me as a hunting fan, the reality is I'm stoked to be shooting with these folks. Yeah. And so I want to challenge them. I want to kind of, I want to chirp in the air. I want to have them chirp back because I think it's fun. So I, I kind of set the tone. As Let soon me as go we got back to, because I'm trying to figure this out because in my head, I'm now the worst. <laughs> so I, I Wait, let, let me give you 128 yard target. How many people in your, how many people in your group? Five? No, we had 10 today. 10 in your group. How many people out of that 10 hit that target? Today, only one. Yesterday, two of us hit it. Okay, that's normal. I was yeah. gonna, if you were going to be but, like, well, eight but, of us, I was, was going to say, get out of the room. Let's no. do something more realistic, though. Let's do one that you have a site, a pin for. Yeah. Because nobody has a 120-yard oh, So pin. how about, how about a, the 95? How many, how many guys in your group hit the 95-yard target the, in the vitals? What about Which the hard? Which one is that? The doll the shoe? Fallow, the fallow bucket. The fallow 95, bucket. like downhill. Downhill. We, 
I, I, I the one I can remember more is the hog that's that was stretching at like ninety two yards. That target sucks. We our group cleaned up on that. Oh, you did? Yeah, in the shadow, the one that yeah. was in the shadow. Our group cleaned up on that, but that's one of the ones that I wounded. Yeah, and we had, like our group right. struggled with that target. This is, but again, and but again, that one like, where that vital was on that one. Yeah. I got a wound on that one. But if you were going to say, like, where would you shoot to hit him in the heart? You'd be like, where Yanni's arrow was, right? So, yeah. well, we, so you're still for future sh- reference. We always vote. Oh, yeah. It, because always we don't, vote. we don't always shoot the insert because a lot of these, especially not so much here in, uh, in Big Sky, but in, in Snowbird, where I shot, where Remy and I came up with this system, a lot of the shots were at like 30 degrees uphill. And so you shoot the insert. Right. at 30 degrees uphill, you're actually going to miss at least one lung, maybe right. both. Right. Over so we would shoot, like if it was an uphill shot at, at 30 degrees, we would actually shoot it in the, in the chest below the insert and call it good. Yeah. But it was always a vote. And it most of the time came down to where is the exit wound going to be. So, right. so on that one, you and your group could have voted. And if they had voted, if they had voted I, Yanni got it, then you would have got the point still. Yeah. I like that. And that was one difference between South Dakota and here. Because there were some shots in South Dakota that, like I ended up getting called a wound on because it wasn't in the insert, but you know it'd be a ram quartering two at fifty yards, and you'd hit. That's it. gonna kill him. Yeah. It's gonna kill it because it, the whole the whole idea was that we didn't have to look for the circles. It started actually because when we first did this the the first time, uh, some of the some of the rings were really hard to see. And Remy and I were talking about it. We we're like, this is stupid. Why are we shooting the rings anyways? Like, let's just aim for where you would on the animal. And and Remy was actually kind of giving me some pointers because uh, I he he thought I was aiming a little far back. And I was like, no, that's where I've always aimed. He's like, no, aim a little bit more forward. That's a better pocket. Wow. And so then we just got into aiming for the shape of the animal, not worrying about where the actual insert was. Yeah. Yeah. I really, yeah. I really want to get back out there now. I think you should stay. I think we, you and I go out there and uh, start voting on yays and nays. We'll both be 15 plus. You think so? <laughs> <laughs> I'm super if nervous. If it's just the two of you. I'm super nervous. <laughs> yeah. you'll, you'll suddenly I be could, in the 15. I could go out I mean, by I, myself and clean the course I'm, right now. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I found a couple of your arrows. No, I just found one of your arrows. Listen, <laughs> I was terrible today. <laughs> terrible. Maybe the worst I've ever shot. And I just, you know how much archery is a mindfuck. Like there were yeah. some days I got a hundred yard range in my backyard. I got five, six targets. I had a bunch of people from Yeti come over and we were just drilling them, drilling them, drilling. Of course, there's nothing like this. It's not down. It's a freaking yard, mm-hmm. but, uh, you feel good. You're like, yeah, okay, done. And then you get out there and you start failing that. And then I hear that you guys are busting 11s and 15s. It's like, man, there's no, yeah, it's a mind fuck. Yeah, yeah. But I, the, the cool thing about, the, the cool thing I'll say about archery events like this is it brings you to a different level because I think everybody everybody is there is the best archer in a certain group of people yeah right you can just keep you can keep dropping the level until at some point you're the best archer and I and, I was stopping and say this I've been in a groups at the total archery challenge last year I was in a couple of groups where it was just arrows flying through the trees the entire time like so I've also seen the other side of like our group today. I'm like, man, it's a really good group. Everybody's basically doing what they need to be doing. Like there's some variances and stuff like that. Yeah. My goal was just to hit foam. Yeah. If I had foam on every single target, I think I missed three out of 25. Yeah. But yeah, every time I had, I heard a thunk, I was just walking away. Foam is <laughs> home. Foam, foam is home, home baby. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. I got my dad's out here for the event. 
and he's never shot a course like this. And he's, you know, he's practiced whatever flat ground back in South Dakota. But he, I mean, if you're talking about just like slamming foam, he cleaned house today. Yeah, I mean, he did great. Yeah. I mean, there was a couple of targets he, you know, missed or whatever, but for the most part, just aces. I'm stressed. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, my stressed. point earlier was that uh, it's good to get out here to places like this that bring people who are better than you into your yeah. interaction because mm-hmm. I, I shot yesterday and I was I shot the best out of the group and I was like alright I'm doing pretty good I'm ready for hunting season I shot today and I got my ass handed to me and I was like alright I could still be better yeah. you know well that's I, the takeaway for me is when you go into an event like this understand what you're doing you personally sit down with yourself and be like I'm training now and this is how this is going to work with my overall training for hunting because everybody that's using a bow to kill things should train a lot. Should. Yep. And if you're not, then hopefully you come out to something like this and learn. <laughs> that you should be training. That yeah. you should <laughs> then go home and train. But yeah. come into this like, hey, it's a fun shoot. I'm flying in them. You know, or uh, this is, a, I'm training. I want to, this is what I want to achieve. And if you do that, then no worries. But if you come into this and kind of just, walking around shooting arrows and, and not thinking about it and the next thing you know it's changing the way you're hunting then that's problematic for sure because i'm sure a lot of people do that there's kids that shoot this there's wives that shoot this you know there's people that just want to have a fun archery day out there shooting this that don't really understand the scope of what it what's mm-hmm. going down so um, we we had a little round table discussion last night for a little video and we talked a lot about um like this is it can be you can use it as like a a preseason gear test. Yeah. So you can wear your boots that you're going to wear this season. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you got your bow completely dialed in how you think you want it for hunting season. And it gives you that opportunity. You can wear the pack that you're going to wear for hunting season. You can wear like the, you know, it's hot. So you can wear like the lightweight clothing that you're going to wear for early season. And you can start to kind of put all those things together and, you know, bust the dust, the rust off before season actually hits a month from now. And so I think a lot of people use it as an opportunity for that to kind of, yeah, you that's know, instead, instead of walking yeah. in opening day, going, oh, I don't have my backpack dialed in, like where all my stuff sits, and yeah. I don't have, you know, yeah, I, 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 about I very well could shoot an elk this fall wearing almost the exact same things I had on today. So, my yeah. pants would probably be different, but we talked about that going in. I, I was wearing, I was in South Dakota, I was wearing camo, and somebody said something like, "Oh, camo." Oh, you, do, you and I are talking about guys in like full camo and stuff. Yeah, your first thought is like, "Oh, Jesus." <laughs> You're overplaying your hand there, fella. <laughs> but then you think like, hey, man, that's not the worst idea in the world. You know, maybe it's, yeah. you kind of look like a fool. Walking testing your kid. Camp, but, but you're testing your kid to some level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. that's that's. I shot, David I shot. doesn't ski in blue jeans um, all year and then just puts on his uh, waterproof pants for uh, yeah. go time, right? It's true. Yeah. But that's a, it's a great, it's a damn fun event. I it got is. nothing tied to this thing other than I love to go do it. And if you're not doing Total Archery Challenge, it's, I think it's right now, it's seven cities everywhere from Pennsylvania, Texas, uh, Montana, Utah, Tennessee, South Dakota. I mean, so there's got to be some place that's close to where you're at. And if you're a bow hunter and you, you truly believe that you want to be good at it and not just be, you know, a Saturday shooter, come and do one. Give it a rip. Yeah. And figure out kind of what you want to get out of it and then go there. Like that's uh, what I could think of. I think so. My uh, ender to your your original point about are we are we stretching the distances too long or are we are we creating danger for ourselves? I think if you just go back around and talk about our scores, the fact is we all wounded animals. 
So yeah. that proved to us that I am not competent to shoot at that range. Yeah. You know, so th- that's not to tout me and Remy's scoring system anymore, but I'm just saying like it, it, it's a, it was a good practical real world application of this is a challenging shot and I'm probably not good enough to shoot it. Yeah. You know, so you got it. So I, we all do that, that we all do that assessment. Whenever I spot a deer and I start a stock, I'm like, if I can get to that point, if I can get to that piece of cover or that bush or that uh, rock outcropping, is that close enough to shoot? Because that, because I'm always assessing. That's probably the last. That's probably the last cover I'm going to have. Yeah. If I get that close, can I do it? And so it's good to it's good to know. Maybe you can. Maybe you can. You know. Yeah. It's for, for David's point, there's no the, the, the this scoring system doesn't have a name. It's not like the no, Wise just... Warren scoring method. <laughs> okay, that could be it. For anybody that wants to go do that, go do that in your backyard, yeah. man. Like you Absolutely. got a target, go do that. You know, you got a 3D target. A lot of people sure do have that. Go do it and let us know how the hell it goes. And then when you're done that, think about what Yanni's title should be at Meteor. <laughs> Thank you. Those are the two. That's the two pieces of homework from this conversation. And right into Ben. Right in. Send it to go, to, go to the website. But I'd like to have people to write in, you know, like letters. But I don't have it. I don't want to give out my address. Can I give out your address, Yanni? I think you need to get a P.O. box in Bozeman or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Send to. Yeah, once a month you can check, it. check it. Check yeah. it. Check it like once every six months. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> this is a total rabbit trail. Let's go. But I like the concept of write-ins. Yeah. Because in our world of social media, we have a little too much instant feedback. Don't you think? Yes. Like it's a little too easy to sit down at the computer and write a comment or yeah. an email or um or even record a video in response to what somebody else said. But it takes time to sit down at a table, write something out with a pen and paper, and put it in an envelope, find the address you're going to send it to, and send it in. That's why there were a lot less trolls back in the day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because you start writing that, like, and, you know what, man? Here's what like, I think. You're like, man, this guy got like, to read this for kinda, like two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> it's not really worth my time, right? So I think it'd be, I think it actually it would be a good thing, maybe, if we had a little less instant feedback and, and we had to, yeah. because... It, it, like you said, it would be a lot better sometimes if people just decided, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this. I think that's most of what happens on social media is people say things that they shouldn't say because they're fired up right in the moment. And later they might they might wish they could go back and unsay it, oh, but it's too a, late. There's a lot of folks that do that, then you call them out for it. And they're like, I'm sorry, man. I just, I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I was not thinking. I got a little, I was drunk. All positive comments can so, be done digitally. All negative comments must be mailed to to, to PO box <laughs> PO box one two three nine four. eight nine Belgrade Montana. That might be a good idea. There's no that's some homework for me. I'll create a PO box or something like that, where people can write in. Yeah. Uh, Yanni, do you have any concluding? I'm steal. I'm gonna steal this for since you're here. I'll steal this from the mediator podcast. <laughs> What's Steve call him? Uh, concluder. Including thought. I don't think I've ever. Done I had a que- I guess I have one last question for David. Are your sisters still hunters? Uh, one is and one isn't. And I think that, that maybe speaks to what I was talking about at the beginning where, uh, hunting is innate, is innate for some people. Some people are really yeah. passionate about it and some people are just like, no, this isn't, this isn't really for me. And my sisters are exactly like that. One of them, uh, got criticized by her friends for going out there and wanting to kill Bambi. And, and she thought the social pressure was more than she wanted to overcome to go out and hunt. And the other one was the opposite. She was just like, I don't care what you think. I, I think hunting's cool. I'm gonna keep doing it. I like that. Cool. It's a good perspective, especially for twins. I don't know why twins matters, but <laughs> they look the same. 
They're yeah. are they identical twins? <laughs> They're not. Oh but, damn it! I know. Sorry, <laughs> ruins the whole. Thing. <laughs> it ruins the whole. Ruins the whole point. Is that your only concluder? Yeah, I'm happy with that. Thank right. you, David. Any final thoughts? Oh man, it's just an honor to be here. Sitting with you guys chat. This is fun. I yeah. uh, I really appreciate you guys allowing me in the room and uh i'd love to shoot with you guys sometimes if we sometimes we get a chance and i'd love to hunt turkeys with any or all of you yes turkeys let's do it can we turkeys are the best and anybody who downs turkeys come see us i see a turkey bus tour coming together it's happening i'm really i'm already doing a month come find me you're doing a month at least where do we send mail to Bus boy. <laughs> I'd give out my address, but it all gets forwarded wherever I'm at. Sam, have you got any traction on bus B and B that we talked about in prior? <laughs> no, I have yet to get please, a message about bus B and B. Please let's continue to get that narrative. Tell people what bus B and B. So is. bus B and B. If you're traveling somewhere and you're going to need a place to stay, you just rent my bus and I'll drive to you. Yep, it's called bus B and B. Bus it's the different than Airbnb because Sam will drive to wherever you're at. Yeah, and you could and you'd be like, man, I need you to park that bus next to the conference center and Sam will drive right over there done I'll yep. just pull up pull up yep. and then he'll go get a hotel and then you just have <laughs> you just have at the bus yeah it's fine there's yeah. no toilet or shower but you know it's, it's okay whatever. Yeah, whatever it's get over it. some stupid Airbnb that's right <laughs> anyway think about which is a terrible plan. name because nobody makes you breakfast yeah 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 but, that is a misnomer would yeah. you cook people that breakfast in bus B&B definitely Ooh, there you go. See, I think you could get a sun shower, you know, a little solar solar shower bag. That wouldn't be too hard to. I actually have. I have all of the pieces to do a a like a full on like propane tankless water heater shower. I just haven't put all the pieces together. But for bus B and B, you'd put it together. Yes. How much a night? You think? Depending on the location. I don't know, twelve to fifteen thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Seems a little limiting. Well, it, but. <laughs> that's fine. I got to cover diesel fuel to get there. <laughs> it's true. not great in the mountains, so if you're do, like trying to do a mountain getaway, I got to you know, it's the risk cost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not go over the complications. Let's just talk about the good. You know, yeah, let's try it. It's out. a good thing. Bus B and B. Anything else, Sam? No, just thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. <sighs> I'm stressed about. Changing your flight to stay and shoot again? Yeah. Because I really think that if I took your guys' tact and I was like, I'm going out here to shoot a score and kill these animals, every one of them, and I'm not going to accept those arrows to go anywhere or anywhere else. Because today I was kind of just like slinging them. And then I, I started sucking and I was like, well, now I'm just going to keep slinging them. I'm not even going to aim anymore. And it just got bad. I'm very stressed about uh, as well as you guys did. And it's now poorly perspective-wise, that we did. What do you think about that, Yanni? Are you stressed, too, or are you in care? No, no. I feel pretty good about it, about my shooting today. You, I thought you shot first, well. First time ever? Yeah. Uh, yeah, again, all the, like you get, like you said, David, all the ones that are within range that you would take in the field in real time, I felt like I killed Smack all those them. animals. All right. Well, I might change my flight. Maybe we'll do a ba- another podcast tomorrow. A follow-up. A follow-up podcast. Probably not going to happen, but it might. I'm out. Empty promises. All right. That's it. Bye. Bye. Oh, you do it, Yanni. Yanni's going (laughs) to hit the stop button. That's it. That is all. Episode number 22 is done. Thank you to David, Sam, Yanni for joining me for episode number 22. I think great conversations there really love learning a little bit from David about how to be 
uh, a better hunter, a better competitor, just a better human being. David is one of, is definitely one of those, one of my favorite guys to hang out with and run into. Um, and I'm glad he could jump on and podcast with us. Same for Yanni Patelis, uh, Meat Eater Crew. Really enjoyed him. Make sure if you have thought about it, hit me up an email. Hit me up at BennyOB301 on Instagram. And tell me what Yanni's title should be over there at Meat Eater. Be fun. Let's see what we can come up help out Mr. Rinella. He's a busy man. So, in the meantime, episode number 23 is coming at you next Tuesday. But in the meantime, thehuntingcollective.com is there. You can read articles. You can watch videos. You can listen to podcasts. All kinds of stuff. Hopefully, you've heard from Mr. Charles Post. Hopefully, you've heard from last week's guest, Jason Matzinger, and a lot of others. So we'll be with you next time for number 23. Signing off. See ya. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.